Jay the Eva Kharjigil, the Rebel Matters podcast is back on the air. It's been a while since I last recorded a podcast and that's been mostly due to the fact that I've been working on the format of the podcast and trying to simplify it and simplify the processes that I have to go through to get a podcast out there. It's also due to the fact that I've been working hard on Ackley and the workload has been quite high. That's the personal training facility that I own in Cork City Centre. And I've also been abroad in Palestine, London and Iceland for one thing and another that hopefully we'll get to talk to talk about a little bit down the line as well. Now, every time we come around the cycle of getting the Rebel Matters podcast back on the road, we'll have 13 episodes at the minute. It gets a little bit better, a little bit easier to sustain and definitely it's something that I want to keep going for the long term. So what I want to work on on this batch of episodes is building a relationship with you, the listener, and giving you an input into the episodes a way that you can ask questions, comment or make suggestions about the podcast and you can do that now through contacting me through my personal Twitter account which is AnlaOC, A-I-N-L-E-O-C on Twitter and make whatever suggestions you want to. You can share the podcast there. It'll be available on the, on the other social medias as well but I'm trying to focus all the communications that we start having through Twitter because I think that's a nice medium that we can just have a little interchange there. Now, my guest this week is Gillian Burke. She's a friend of mine for a long time, an ex-international rugby player, a fellow sports scientist and an all-round inspiration. I've listened to this episode quite a few times since we recorded it up in LIT in Limerick. And to be honest with you, it fills me with a whole host of emotions, anger at sometimes, sadness at other points and just downright inspiration throughout the whole thing. And especially at the end, once Jill has had the chance to tell us her story and once we've had that conversation. I really am really looking forward to sharing this story with you because some of the stuff that Jill is saying here, it's the first time that it's been put out in the public domain and I'm really honoured that Jill chose the Rebel Matters podcast to do so and actually it's a really big compliment to me as well that she felt confident enough and had the confidence in me to bring this story out. So from the very offset, I'm very grateful for Jill for sharing the story but I'm looking forward to putting it out there and letting you listen to it and hearing what you have to say after the episode. As I mentioned there, the interview with Jill was done up in LIT in Limerick, but as regular listeners to the podcast know, the vast majority of the work for the Rebel Matters podcast is done in the back room of Ackley, where I've built a bit of a makeshift studio. Any of the members or people passing through Ackley will see the gear down in the back room already set up to record and make some sweet, sweet podcasts. Now, our modus operandi at Ackley is to train people of all levels of ability with a very high standard and very high quality service in personal training. And one of our coaches, Alan Deneen, is who I've recorded an episode with for the podcast. And if you haven't heard that, I'd really recommend going back and listening to it. But Alan plays wheelchair rugby for the Irish wheelchair rugby team. And that team have recently qualified for the World Championships in Sydney, Australia, by finishing first in the qualifiers competition. For one reason or another, and for reasons that are completely beyond us here at Ackley and anyone else that I've talked to about this, the Irish wheelchair rugby team get very little state funding. I don't even know if they get any state funding, to be honest, but they're fundraising their asses off at the minute. So we put our heads together to see if we could come up with something that would help Alan and the team get over to Sydney and do the business for the green, white and gold. And what we have is an event on the 21st of July at 6pm until late called Gym Jam. This is going to be a collection of the best and best and most impressive talent that we have in Cork and further afield. DJs and rappers and everything. It's going to be class. So we've got Bon Voyage playing, Kneecap, 
who I'm going to play a track, their newest track by at the end of the episode, so hang tight for that there. Stevie G, Darren Kelly, who DJs here regularly when we have our long table lunches, so that's going to be great. County Vinyl, Aoife O'Neill, B2B, Kira Brady, Lisa O, and DJ Geronimo Flex. They're all going to be here in Ackley doing their thing from 6pm on the 21st of July. You can buy tickets for this in Ackley or in Soma Coffee Company in um, the Soma Coffee Shop on Tucky Street. The tickets are 10 euro and it's an over 18 event. We're really hoping to give Alan and the rest of the team a really big boost for going over to Australia. And it's the very least we can do. Since we've started organizing this, it's been amazing how much the local Cork community and especially the small business community in Cork City Centre has come together to help Alan on his way. Rocketman HQ on Princess Street have even released a sandwich just for Alan. It's called the Alan Bagel. It's absolutely delicious. And they've committed to giving two euro of every one of those Alan Bagels to the fund to help the Irish wheelchair rugby team get across to Australia. It's unbelievable. It's a really heartwarming thing to see everyone pulling together so much to send the Irish wheelchair rugby team across there. Hopefully in the future, teams like this will get the recognition and the financial support that they deserve. But until then, we're going to work our arses off to get them over there with as much support as possible. So as I said, you can buy your ticket for the for the Gym Jam at Ackley or on Soma on Tucky Street. They're €10. Euro. It's an over 18 event. It's going to be an absolutely brilliant event and we hope to see you there. There are, of course, a limited number of tickets. So if you're interested in going, please get in touch as soon as possible to make sure that you can get in on the door on the night. Also, because of the fact that the Rebel Matters podcast is completely free, it's independent, it's just me doing it by myself and it's self-funded, I want to give a little boost to Ackley here. If you're in the market for some top quality personal training, then take the opportunity to come in and meet myself and yourself can sit down together and we can work out a plan of action to achieve the goals that you want to work on. You can do that through contacting us through the Ackley website, which is www.ackley.ie, A-C-L-A-I.ie. And of course, you can contact us through uh, Ackley on, through the Facebook, which is Ackley Health and uh, Ackley Strength and Movement or Instagram, which is Ackley underscore Cork. You'll find us on both ones. Send us a direct message through either of those mediums and we'll get in touch with you. We'll hook you up with a 20 minute consultation. You come in, sit down. It's free and we can chat through, chat through your goals, things that you've done before and what you want to achieve with your training. And we'll put together a solid plan and help you get there as efficiently and as enjoyably as possible. We talked about Jill's rugby career, how it started and how she came to play for Ireland over 50 times. We talked about Jill's treatment after a life-altering concussion that she sustained during an Irish rugby team training session and the effect that that had on her life personally, professionally and emotionally. We also delved into the importance of upholding the values of rugby in everyday life, including Jill's views on the importance of a high standard of personal conduct on and off the field as it relates to the very high-profile court case that we had involving rugby players from the Ulster rugby team and the Ireland rugby team recently, which I'm sure you're aware of. Jill presented herself as an absolute role model during this interview for all of us, whether we play sport or not, or whether we play rugby or not, whether we're young or old. So I'm going to leave it there and cut straight to the interview with, interview with Jill, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed talking to Jill, but I'm also sure that you're going to be surprised by some of the things that Jill has got to say. Enjoy the interview. How did you start playing rugby? Um, so when I was in fifth year in school, I begged my mother to let me go out to Shannon because it was the only place that I could find uh, a rugby team. I'd been watching once to play with my dad and like I loved it, uh, but I couldn't like find a team that had a women's team. And then I found Shannon 
And the mother was like, no way, no, you're doing your leavings out, you're not going to break anything, you're not doing it, so she wouldn't let me go. So I kind of had it in my head straight, I was always involved in horses, like made a lot of horses at home. So I had it in my head that the minute I went to college I would go and play rugby. So I went down to the, to the open week and they had a training session with the college team and I just I went straight down I dragged one of the girls with me and I went straight down and I was hooked from the first from the first second. But like I think the best thing was that like you went down and I don't know they were like practicing lifting in the line out and I had no idea how to do anything but I was strong so I could lift somebody and they're like oh you're really good at that and you're like oh thanks <laughs> you know and you could hit people and I didn't have any fear I suppose from being around the horses and stuff for years I never had any fear so I kind of threw myself into it and it just suited me like but the people suited me as well because they were so nice I, and growing up with the horses like you'd have a lot of friends in it but it was real individual sport at the same time it was all show jumping and stuff so you'd be in a competition but you were always kind of competing for yourself so straight away going into that team environment and feeling that team it was probably my first real experience of it and I just I loved it like and they were so positive and to be honest I was very lucky because the people that were in that team I think we had about eight Irish internationals in that team at the time and the Irish captain was coaching us and DJ Collins was coaching us like you couldn't have been involved with, with better people who had more, so much passion but like were so brilliant like I went straight into a team and I was like oh my god like this is brilliant but you know now looking at other teams like I was really lucky to go into a team with that level like um, and that was only a college team so I remember my first match and I was like, ah, they'll shove me on there for a few minutes to be grand. And we arrived down in UCC and they were like, they named the team and I was starting. And I went up to, to Belto and I was like, ah, come here, that has to be a mistake there because I don't know any of the rules. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. She's like, you'll be fine, in you go. And I was staring around the pitch and it was grand. I think I just gave my AC in the first few minutes of it. I was like, I'm grand, I'm not coming off. I'm going to keep playing. Eventually they took me off towards the end of the match because I was arguing with the ref over something that I was doing wrong like but I didn't know the rules so I uh, the laws so I was arguing with him and they were like okay yeah you've played it off today you come off you come off before you cause trouble but yeah it was like I said they were the best people to go in with because their standards were so high that you kind of you, you learned from, from you learned at the best level straight away instead of learning kind of in a poor environment where uh, maybe the skill level wasn't so good and stuff like that like straight away you saw a good skill level and you just kind of thought that was the norm so you had to kind of sink or swim I distinctly remember sitting in the pest building one day and you came in a little bit late for one of our lectures and you had like massive black guy <laughs> cuts was that with uh, what's his name Dave a GA Dave Weldrick yeah. yeah and I came in and my face was black and blue and he started shouting at me because I was late and I just started crying and pointed at my face and I was like look at my face and he was like okay love okay go sit down for the <laughs> but yeah I stuck my head in the wrong place a lot what does it take to get from where you started off when you were in university first year starting off really probably playing rugby to becoming an international player uh, it takes a lot of work um it takes it takes a lot of commitment as well like it, it's definitely not something that it probably did kind of fall on my lap a little bit well I that's how I'd see it I guess I probably uh did deserve a call up to Ireland and and have or I always feel I've earned every cap that I've ever got because I've definitely worked very hard to get them and I've never taken any of that for granted but I mean it's a huge commitment once you decide that you want to be at that level you have to want to be at that level like you, there's no kind of half road about it because the fact is there's 30 or 40 other girls all putting in as much effort and 
you really you you have to put in that effort to to keep yourself there firstly because it's a very competitive environment and secondly you have to put it in because if you're not you're only letting the team down letting yourself down you know like is it a case of seeing yourself there a very long time before you actually get there and just believing that you're going to get there and then just going for it uh, so like when I started playing I was at the college team um like I said there was a load of internationals it was tennis side we had a plan give the ball to Jetty and Jetty would run us in the tries like and that was it we'd beat teams 90 points and stuff like that and it was very easy to play like and it was it was so much fun to play and we didn't lose any matches we won everything the whole way through college uh, but I was playing obviously with people who were at a very elite, elite level themselves and you do see them playing and we used to go to the matches with signs for the girls and Jetty for president all this kind of stuff and uh, it was cool to be involved in that as a supporter side of thing but I guess the longer you play the more you do kind of look and say, oh, like, I might like to be involved in that. Um, like, I went down to Bowes after that first Christmas and, like, I didn't get to play with Bowes, really. They had a class team down there. I was kind of a high a high bench player. I got a few minutes in at the end of a few matches, but nothing significant, really. But I guess all learning at the time. Um, and that summer, I decided to go up to Connacht. Uh, obviously, I'm a monster person, a very proud monster person, but I guess... I had really enjoyed my first year playing rugby and I needed to keep learning and developing. And, I mean, nowadays it's fair to say that four provinces are all very competitive and each match is difficult. But 15 years ago, Munster and Leinster were the strongholds and Ulster and Connacht really were just fixtures. Do you know what I mean? So I went to Connacht hoping, not with any certainty, but hoping that I'd have a better chance of playing there um, and learning over that summer period. Because if I went to Munster, the, the Irish props were playing in Munster. I had no kind of, I didn't see myself with any chance of getting any game time. And I went to Connacht and I blagged my way onto the team. I told them I had loads of game time. I told them I'd done loads of scrums. Uh, it was obviously all a lie. I hadn't really done any. I had my first proper scrum in the first Interpro that year. Uh, and I was up against one of the Irish props, Mark Coulter. And she picked me up off the ground and she hung me about a metre in the air in every single scrum. And, you know, I was freaking out. I had no idea what to do. thought I was going to break my neck. It was a little bit scary. Fee Coughlin, who would have been my club and college teammate and captain, was on the Leinster team. And I was looking at her in every scrum going, nah, another one, Fee, like, what am I going to do? She's going to kill me. She was like, you're doing fine. Just ride it out. You'll be grand. And you did. I did have to do that for a while. Like, I didn't really know what I was doing. But you have to kind of problem solve on your own, you know. So, like, I spent my years, well, you know, the next year I was playing with Bowes and I got my place on the Bowes team because that summer period had done me good, like, constant contact with with rugby, constant training and stuff. And, you know, a good interpro was where I had got full game time, like. And I'd learned a lot. And then, uh, you know, I, I stuck with Connacht for a few years. And after, I think it was 2007, I... Um, I I got a call up to the Irish squad to train. Now, I joke about it. I don't know if it's a joke or not, but I think I was probably a token Connacht player to be brought up because they had to bring two or three from Ulster and Connacht to the squads because really they were made up of Munster, Leinster and a number of exiles at the time. So I think I was probably a token Connacht player. I guess there had to be somebody, so it was me and two other girls. So, you know, I'm lucky that I got that chance. But like as soon as I kind of got into that environment... Uh, you know, once you go into that environment and you see how cool it is and how intense it is, but you see the reward for it at the end of the day of wearing an Irish jersey, then that is going to, you know, have an effect on you. And uh, yeah, from from kind of that point then, I definitely knew that being involved in that environment was something that I wanted. To I wanted a chance to see if I was good enough. To, I didn't know if I ever would be, but I wanted a chance to see if I was good enough to wear that Irish jersey. 
At what point did you move down to Munster then? So that year, that 2007, I went up there with Connacht Flair. And then I couldn't tell you exactly if it was after that kind of Six Nations or if it was before the next Interpro Series. But so one of the girls from Connacht rang me and was just like, okay, like, you know, you actually have a real chance now of getting on the team. Um... I don't think we'd ever won a match with Connacht while I was playing with them for three or four years like so she was like you know you have a real chance of getting on the team you need to go down to Munster now like you need to be playing at that level and training at that level and putting yourself in the pitch and because I guess playing with Munster was going to and a higher level team was going to show you maybe a little bit better on the pitch and stuff and actually being involved in, in winning matches and stuff so like they kind of pushed me to go down there and I was okay to go down there like if I'm honest I stayed with Connacht for a long time out of loyalty because I really respected them I love the girls up there I mean I love their passion for how they play up there and they really were a team that never gave up um, in any match so I like I love that and I did love playing for them but like I said I'm a very proud Munster person and you know I, I always did want to go back and play with Munster so I went back to Munster then that season uh, that 2007-2008 season and um, yeah like I've, I've been with Munster with Munster since would it have been a standout moment the first time you put the Munster jersey on? Yeah, it was cool. Like, yeah, because I mean, I wasn't influenced growing up looking at, at uh, Bowes playing rugby. Like, that wasn't what, what made me want to play rugby. Like, Munster's what made me want to play rugby. Even Ireland wasn't really a thing. Like, it was the Munster matches I used to go to my dad with. Like, they're the team that I looked up to. They're my inspiration for playing rugby. So, I mean, I feel like you have to do one before you do the other anyway, but to put that jersey on was was really cool. Like I said, my loyalty out to Connacht wasn't necessarily because it was Connacht, it was because of the people that were there and how much they'd helped me and developed me and grow me as a player. But to go and play with Munster, that was like, they're the team that inspired me to play rugby. So it was the, it was a really cool thing, yeah. And from then, what were the steps to get up to the international team? Well, like I was very lucky in my club environment. Like so, down in Bowes, we had—I mean, we had a, a team of internationals. I, uh, one year, I think we had fourteen out of fifteen certain players all internationals, current or past. Like we had, and you know, we was we was kill the league. Like you know, it's it's again different nowadays. It's more competitive, but. 10 years ago we were huge a really strong team like and really we were pretty unbeatable like and the thing was with Bose is that like the, there's a huge pride in the women's team we had coaches like Ian Costello coaching us who's now with Wasps but we spent a lot of years with Munster we had like uh, Coleman who was the captain of the boys team like we had lads coaching us that were very decent level coaches because he was obviously a standard because he was fantastic like above anybody but they put the investment into the team as well. So, like, you know, they would identify um, players that were maybe of a possible and in, had a possible international future and they'd be put into the Bowes Academy. So they obviously had a boys' Bowes Academy, but there was no difference with Bowes. They were proud of both of their teams. So any girl that looked like they had a future were playing for Munster Ireland would be put in there as well. So, I mean, I went into the Bowes Academy early enough, I think maybe in my second year, while I was in second year in college and stuff, I went into, second or third year, I went into that academy. Um, so, like, you have to kind of contribute that to how I kind of went up the ladder quite quickly as well, because I definitely feel like I was probably had access to things that even people at the international level didn't have access to at the time. Like, we had three skill sessions a week, we had three gym sessions a week, and not just, like, you know, focused the girls playing and doing skills like we were, it was maybe four girls with 10 boys 12 boys so like 
I, I can remember those skin sessions and the pressure of standing at 10 and the 9 was one of the boys that has some Monster Academy contract and a Bose Academy player and he's bulleting the ball at you and you're like please don't drop the fucking ball like you know because it's going to come so fast And but you got you got used to playing at, and decision making at a really high level I could teach you how to kick a ball because I learned how to kick a ball I'm never going to have to do it but like we learned kind of yeah, full skill set and how to play rugby and Kazi was very big on, on decision making and stuff so I mean I think for me and for a lot of the other girls that went through that system between Bowes and Ireland uh, we were really lucky that we had a club that really was invested in producing players and a winning team but producing players that wanted to, to play for Ireland so I was kind of already doing what I needed to do probably more than others without even realising it you know it sounds like a very rich environment for learning and then developing as a player and uh, yeah like it is I mean it's it, I can't say it was always easy it's the thing about Bose is like I love Bose anybody who has ever played with Bose probably loves us because we're a great team we have a huge amount of camaraderie so many friends from it but at the end of the day it has always attracted a certain type of player like and you have to be competitive you have to have a willingness to learn and you have to want to become something of, of a decent standard uh, you don't have to want to go and play for Ireland and uh, stuff like that but you have to want to be the best player that you can be so it was it was sometimes a tough environment to learn and you know I mean you make mistakes at club training and you'd be called up on it like you know and that's fine but that you were being called up by somebody who was the Irish captain so you're not going to argue with her she's right like you know and it definitely meant that you had to expect higher standards of yourself and Bose is probably that kind of club that you come out to it and if you take take everything out of it like the friends and, and how, how well we get on together and that kind of unique bond that we all have like of being Bose players but if you just look at it from a rugby point of view you do either sink or swim because you couldn't possibly go down to training every week and mess up in training every week and come home and feel good about playing rugby if you were in a club that that's competitive you know you have to have that kind of want and willingness to, to really be a better player like and was it a big step up whenever you did kick off your international career uh, uh, yeah it is like I mean I remember the first year I was up at the training camps it was tough like I mean I'd nearly say it was tougher now like because I mean the characters were a hell of a lot stronger back then and the training sessions could be two and a half hours flogging absolutely flogging us like and there was a few girls there a few people who are good friends of mine now but you know they were tough they were tough uh, tough captains and you made a mistake and they had no problem stopping the session and saying why are you doing there like that's wrong what are you doing and, and, and making you know that you were new and know that uh, this wasn't good enough to be in Ireland camp that you needed to be better so I mean that was tough like our, I often remember them saying oh four up here to do this drill I'd be flying back to the back of that queue there was no way I was going to be in the first four because I genuinely wouldn't want to put myself in a position where I would mess up in front of anybody because I mean there was a big expectation and I like I definitely think that's changed now you say four up should have one that came down for a first session will pop into four up like but back then I don't know it was a different environment maybe different type of people but it was it was tough learning um, and I guess I I think that's why that kind of 10 year period maybe not 10 years but maybe 8 year period where the team really significantly grew and grew to a high level um, was because of that kind of initial sta- those high standards that people held the first day you know Was that part of the culture where someone would just stop the training session 
to pinpoint one mistake? Nah, there was just one. There was just one that used to do it. <laughs> she, <laughs> she used to kill me. Uh, Tanya, yeah. I had great points with her. I was only talking to her last night. Uh, but yeah, she's, she's a Kiwi, Kiwi scrum half. Uh, one of the best scrum halves in the world. Hands down one of the people that knows the most about rugby in the world, <laughs> in women's rugby. Um, but she, she was tough, like, yeah. Yeah, she had a standard that Ireland needed to play it. You needed to get up there. And she held those standards very high, but I mean, it wasn't just her. I mean, there was Fee, Fee Coughlin, Lynn Cantwell, Joy Neville. They had, they had standards, like, and they knew how they wanted Ireland to play. They knew how good that we needed. They knew how good we needed to be to ever have a chance of winning stuff. I guess they were all there before me, so they had gone through that period where Ireland were losing matches by 60 points and, and really having a lot of shit days at the office. And if it wasn't for the drive of those girls and, and the coaches involved the team probably never would have got up but yeah they they had seen how other teams they display and they'd seen the standard and they'd obviously experienced playing in different countries some of them as well so they knew the standard that needed to be there and, and they held that quite high So you ended up with over 50 caps for Ireland in the yeah. end what, what kind of what's kind of the what kind of trajectory did, you, did your, your international career take? It must have had a lot of ups and downs of that many games. <sighs> yeah, I mean, obviously it didn't start very easy. Uh, in 2008, I got my first cap. So I went to 2007 to the camps. 2008, I got my first cap. It was kind of unexpected. And the girl that was was dropped uh, for me, I, you know, I wouldn't have rated myself higher than her. So at the time, I definitely thought it was just being given a good chance. And I had probably popped up a bit lucky um but it was a tough it was a tough year it was uh it was the same time maybe a few weeks earlier I'd found out that my my mum had cancer in the brain and that she was really well really had been sent home to die she there was nothing they could do they weren't going to offer any treatment or anything like that and she had a couple of weeks uh to kind of live and this was just after Christmas and obviously the Six Nations starts in February so this was mid-January um and you know the first matches against Italy up in St Mary's for the start of Six Nations and I was going to at least stand in the line for the first time whether I got on the pitch or not I didn't know uh, and it was it was really tough because you know we had the family meeting uh, that week with the cousins and stuff kind of saying like you know it'll kill the woman to bring her up like she, she, she isn't strong enough to do this it'll kill her to bring her up she won't she probably it'll probably cut the days shorter for her but like do we do it because she's never going to have this chance to see you again you know, and she's only going to get worse over the next few weeks, so she won't be here next year to see you play for Ireland. So that was that was really tough because, and obviously we decided not to because probably it wasn't fair to bundle the whole woman into a car and shove her up sitting in the cold in, in St Mary's, even though she would have loved it. Um, and I remember going up to that first match and like all the girls came and they had signs made for me this time and it was cool and you know, I got 10 minutes on the pitch and I didn't really mess up. I, I did my scrums, which at the time was kind of what you were there for, your set piece. So I did my scrums, I lifted the line outs. Um, I was happy enough after it, but it had a huge tinge of sadness to it like, because uh, it, it, was, it was like this distraction in my life that was hugely positive and, and brilliant, but maybe I didn't appreciate that exact moment at the time because I had so much other other stuff going on and it really was like this fantastic opportunity that I loved and not that I didn't love it but it it was really sad like that something that she would be so proud of that she didn't get to to see and that Six Nations kind of uh, and it's why I have a huge emotional attachment with the Irish team the Six Nations was was pretty much my 
it was my saviour for that period of time. It was the only kind of place I could go to to get away for the, from the really sad stuff that was going on at home. And from, you know, seeing your mother get so sick. I mean, we came home after that match and we put on the DVD of the match. And she's like, what's this shit? And I was like, man, it's me. Like, I got a few minutes, I played for Ireland or whatever. Oh, turn that off. What's that? She didn't, you know, the head was kind of not great because obviously that's where she was sick and stuff. And she didn't really appreciate it. She didn't really get it, like, you know, but... Uh, and we went to France the next match and that was cool again another massive experience I'd never gone away to play rugby like you know before and down to the south of France and there's maybe 12,000 people there and like the feelings of it like you know and the environment was just tingling like and you know I, I went on at half time and I thought they were making a mistake I was like what are you putting me on for you know and we, we nearly won the match and we didn't win it um, but like and you're playing against France who are now something that you've never faced before like this machine of a team like these crazy women like you know and they were crazy strong really good rugby players another kind of massive experience that not that I didn't appreciate it but I think that first year passed me by because of a huge it didn't pass me by I just got I went through it like as something that I was very lucky to be a part of but I don't think I like really savoured every single moment because it was this kind of distraction from what was going on kind of in the other half of my life um, and I do remember the very last match and it was up in all our home games were in St Mary's I couldn't tell you who it was against it must have been Scotland maybe and uh, Jetty Fury a very good friend of mine uh, from college and from club and she was playing with Ireland at the time as well and I remember before the game because it was my like mum was obviously still alive at this stage and it, it was our last Six Nations and you don't have you didn't have any kind of fixtures between Six Nations at that point and I went into, I was in the dressing room, I was sitting down, I was trying to hold it together because I was very upset. I knew that she never, now that now she was definitely never going to see me play for Ireland. Um, and I fucking, I broke down, I locked myself in the bathroom. I went into the bathroom and I locked myself in it. I remember poor Jetty coming in, kind of banging on the door, trying to get me to come out and come play the match like because I was in a heap I was crying she came in I think Fee and Link came in trying to just coax me out to get me on the pitch like I was still a bench player like and I I don't even can't even remember how much time I actually played that day but I just remember that it was it kind of broke my heart a little bit that it was the last time that I was going to have that chance for somebody to be so proud of me and she wasn't going to to get that like um, so like and people wonder why I get very upset about the way my Irish career finished but like it was my family and it was definitely the people who when you needed a break from thinking about life and you needed a break from from all the other stuff that was going on like they were my family whether they knew that or not at the time but they were my distraction they were my family and like that first year uh, there was never any doubt in my mind after the first match not to mind but that first that first season that like playing for Ireland was what I had to do like all the plans that I had in my head to go travelling around the world after I finished college, all of these things, they they disappeared straight away. And I was now invested in playing for Ireland and not just getting like one cap, not just getting five caps, getting as many caps as I could until I couldn't give that jersey anymore and somebody had to take it from my 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 back, like because that that was what it was to me. Like that's how much it meant to me, that's how much that family meant. Um the next year it would be two thousand and nine so mum actually fucking uh, surprised everybody and she lasted a year as opposed to the couple of weeks that she'd been given and she, she was mad as a bat but she was she struggled and stuff but she still she was a very strong person and she had a lot to live for her family and friends and she, she kept going and she lasted a year 
Um, so she died two weeks before the next Six Nations uh, on the 19th of January and that was tough then. So like she, you know, we buried her on a, on a Thursday. I had to go up to camp on the Saturday. I don't think I probably said a word to one person. They all, the girls obviously all came down. They had a guard of honour at the funeral and stuff like that. And all the number ones, uh, so everybody supported me. Some of them were actually there that in the nursing home the day she died, um, in the hospice. But she, like they, that kind of period of time was really difficult. And again, that was my family. Like nobody, nobody even made me talk to them. Like if I didn't know a call, nobody was going to say anything to you. They were just hoping that you were okay and that you were there. And they knew that being there as a support was all that you needed at the time. It was never, there was never any question about my rugby ability. It was more like, let's get this girl through this. Like, um, and I got my first start for Ireland that two weeks later uh, against France up in Ashburn so we'd moved our home ground to Ashburn and that was the first time we, we beat France uh, we beat them 7-5 that night in Ashburn and it was crazy like Briggsy kicks the conversion through the post everybody was like oh your mother blew that through the bars there and it was and I obviously had had a tough two weeks but like after that match I broke down I had people's mothers that I didn't even know who they were coming up saying how proud she'd be of me it was I mean I think the whole team was crying that night crying because we'd won the match but as well crying, kind of crying for everything that had happened and stuff like that and it was really tough and I think that's what made the period of time that we had as a, as a team up until 2014 like a really special team that that family that we had that, that, that closeness that we had to each other and really looking out for each other um, so I mean it didn't start in the easiest way but it definitely got better because like 2009 beating France it's you know the goal is to beat England because they're the best team in the world or especially this side of the of the hemisphere um, but you can't beat them without beating France because France are the next best so like beating France kind of gave us this sudden little belief that maybe we could actually move on and, and push push a, a big team like and we did that like and we had our ups and downs we had our close matches with both France and England we've still to this day never beaten France in France we, we've lost 7-5 to them over there but we haven't beaten them we've had days uh, we had in 2010 we had the World Cup there we finished 7th took a scalp out of out of USA in the early rounds we played England in the opening match like huge moments that are highs and lows and you kind of forget the scores almost at the end of it because it's a feeling that you remember um, uh, 2012 we had a trip down to the south of France to play in Po and there are a few messed up uh, it was documented well at the time they, they messed up the connecting flights, basically they wouldn't fly us directly to Po because that would probably cost them too much money. So we had to go to Paris and then we were to get a train, which was to be maybe five or six hours down from Paris to Po. They messed up the flights and the connecting train and we missed our train. And we spent the night in Paris. Oh, sorry, we spent the evening in Paris. We were told, go get what you want to eat. Everybody got steaks and put, put the bill on the air view. Um, and we spent, I think, 11 or 12 hours in an overnight cattle train, basically, in these bunkers with about eight of us in a room and some of the girls panicking because really weren't comfortable with it and it was very claustrophobic and all our gear bags which are the size of that table on this train like 12 hours going down to the south of France and we arrived the next morning at about eight o'clock there was no prep for the match there was nothing it was go get and have some sleep like go to bed and have have some sleep and the French refused to push kick off back an hour or two probably being the French and uh, and we went and we played and actually we lost we were we lost seven five, like as close as we probably have ever come to actually beating them over there. 
but I think it was it was a it was a bonding moment in the team. Like I mean, it really was two fingers up to the world now. If this is how you think we are, like, and if you think this is going to break us, it's not going to break us. Like, um, and that that grew and a bit of publicity came out of that, which was good because we needed that. Like, it wasn't fair that an international team had gone through that. It wasn't fair that we were expected to get up and play our best in a green jersey, which is hugely important to everybody and representing this country after that kind of disaster. Like. Um, and then come the following season, 2013, like we we had a new, it was it was a growing belief, but it was like, it was like a runaway train. It was something that was unstoppable. Like, and, you know, we beat, we beat England for the first time ever that year. Now, they had a few players missing, gone off with sevens, doesn't matter, England or England, like, and we beat them the first time ever by maybe 20 points up in Ashburn. And uh, once that happened, then I know there's a few boxes to take along the way, but like we were on the way to at least a, ch- a possible championship if not a Grand Slam in the first match we'd beaten Wales and uh, I made it and it's crazy like when you think about it they had chipped the ball through to to um, to possibly score a try and they, the winger had chased through and there was a picture of it and Miller had got a toe to the ball to kick it out into touch and there was probably about two inches between your one's hand touching it down and Miller's toe kicking it out into touch and in the last few minutes of the game after everybody on the pitch touching the ball, me and Mazzy ended up out in the wing and Mazzy gave me the ball and I scored a, a try in the corner and that won us the game and I got the nickname as a national treasure then after that because because it had won us the match and so as Mazzy says, not the only hooker to score in a corner but, you know, uh, like, I don't know, we had so many moments that could have turned uh, turned on sixpence and they went our way, like, and we beat England, we had France at home and we beat France at home and then we just had to go to Italy and and beat them over there in this absolute like went for the captains on the day before the sun was shining that amazing day delighted added that ball loved it next morning we woke up it was about minus five uh, there was snow all over the pitch and it was kind of almost snowing and raining at the same time it was ridiculous and we only won the match 6-3 Briggs's boot uh, Briggs's boot did the work that day but we won it and we, we won a Grand Slam and it was something that probably definitely when I started in 2008 wasn't even remotely conceivable but like I said there had been moments kind of the whole way up and we had grown and people had retired after the 2010 World Cup and we'd got like a really good educated group of young players in like people now that had been playing rugby a little bit longer because it was getting more popular people you know who had more probably ability coming in than maybe we had when we went in first um, and, and we got that Grand Slam and I mean then it all kind of culminated yeah, for me, I obviously played in 2015, but for me, like 2014 was was that year that everything kind of fell into place, and we were unlucky in some moments and, and lucky in others. But I mean, we had a good Six Nations. We um, we played England and Twickenham for the first time, for my first time, maybe not the first time in history, but for my first time. Um, we played a poor game plan probably didn't weren't really intelligent in the first half and that cost us but actually had finished quite close to them uh, and to go over there and, and put up any fight like going to France and putting up any fight was definitely something that you could take confidence from and it was an unbelievable atmosphere a couple maybe 13 14,000 people there uh, went on to the pitch beforehand and it was at the very end the minute the whistle men went in the men's match we were on straight after so we were to warm up on the dead ball line and uh, we all went down to the dead ball line and 
like everybody's doing their own thing nobody's doing the actual warm up that we're supposed to do our forwards coach has lost a run of himself completely and he's telling everybody to start lunging the SNC is freaking out because everybody's lunging and they're not supposed to be lunging like it was just crazy but it was because it was 80,000 people all delighted that England had just won fireworks going off the whole lot like I mean you don't kind of forget those experiences and you don't forget the people that you share them with I remember even walking into Twickenham I know the song that was playing in my head even when it comes on now I can still feel that kind of moment walking in there like you, it's not always about the score at the end of the day it's about the experience like and um, we had a like we played in the Aviva that, that year for the first time um, they've never played in the Aviva since which is really sad but you know we got our moment playing the Aviva that year and all because we had earned it because we had won that Grand Slam in 2013 and we definitely deserved a little bit more respect that had been shown to us in the previous years and then 2014 we went to the World Cup Tough pool, USA, always a hard one to beat. Maybe not the best rugby players, and the, the, maybe not the most intelligent rugby players in the world, but physically very, very tough, very fit, very strong. And we beat them. Again, Briggs' boot kind of did the work that day, and, and Briggs got a try. Um, but like a huge team effort that that was always a 50-50 match if we were going to win. And then we went and we played New Zealand in the second game. And at that stage, we had built ourselves to the point where there was actually kind of no stopping us. We knew... Um, we had this little mantra in the team ourselves our coaches Greg McWilliams was our coach and Philip Doyle at the time um, and Peter Bracken was a scrum coach and they had kind of drilled this thing into us that I guess we hadn't realised but it was there in us and all of it was was this is happening we're beating New Zealand that was the thing that was being said it was being repeated to us probably for a year at that point once we found out New Zealand were in, was in our pool this is happening had always been kind of floating around in the background this this phrase and when it came into this is happening we're beating New Zealand we kind of were all sitting there going yeah yeah you know it's alright don't worry we got this like even though I mean obviously we would have been massive underdogs at that point um and we really like we actually beat New Zealand like we went out and, and that day and people had the best games of their lives and they needed it because New Zealand were the reigning championships and our champion, champions and probably one of the best teams even though they didn't finish in the top four they definitely were still one of the best teams in the world um, but yeah I mean it was a belief that had grown up over maybe the past five or six years since that 2010 kind of transition and it, might, it probably shocked us a little bit in one way because you get shocked when you actually achieve what you think you're going to achieve but um, it definitely opened up everybody else's eyes to the fact that we were here and we were we were looking for people to, to support us and and, and it's crazy you hear about everything going crazy at home you see pictures of yourself with the front paper looking absolutely mental <laughs> you know screaming after a match um, people booking flights to get over for the next round come over to semi-finals it went mad like it went crazy it was, it was unbelievable like it was brilliant so many things in that just last passage of reminiscing <laughs> I that you have like just about I'm a rambler. teams coming together like helping each other through personal like personal loss and overcoming Adversity, like getting stuck in Paris together, all those things. There's so many things, I guess, that are reflective of why it's so important that young people get involved in sport yeah. in the first place. The effects of like kind of positive reinforcement and whatnot before the New Zealand game. Everything, so yeah. many things that we could just go down the yeah. we could go down the, the rabbit hole in any of them, really. Yeah. But you mentioned it earlier about the fact that your your Ireland career ended up on a negative note and. I know from speaking to you before that the concussion that you got had a massive impact on your life. I think it's something really something that's very important that we bring it up here while we're having this chat. But how did the concussion happen? And tell us a little bit about the, the aftermath. 
yeah, so you're right in saying that it, it changed my life. It's actually possibly still affecting my life, to be honest, and that's we're looking at three years nearly later now. Um, as an injury, it happened quite quite normal. Um, I went to, I don't remember it firstly, is, is the first thing to say, but from obviously what I've been told, I went to make a tackle and I was up in, in an Irish training camp in UCD in Dublin in September 2015 and we had actually won the championship in 2015 so my last cap for Ireland was winning a Six Nations championship so that's one that you can say I've ended something positively anyway I ended in a better way than some other people have ended um, but I was up and I was trying to make a tackle on when the girls had gone low I think what happened was that she stepped back in towards me and she clipped me on my chin with her knee which uh I think knocked me out first and then I fell backwards to the ground and I hit my head quite hard off the ground. So, I mean, I was out unconscious for, I think, up to 30 seconds. Um, and look, there's a lot of different, there's a lot of different things about, about the next 24 hours that were just not right, not medically right, not, um, not humane. What's that word? Like, like, like not it wasn't responsible how how I was um how I was looked after so like I have no idea what happened on the ground in terms of I know some of the girls were freaking out like some of them tell you oh it was grand some of them tell you your eyes were rolling in your head and I was freaking out and I was really scared and stuff like that so it depends on who you talk to but I know that it wasn't a nice moment for anybody um and that a lot of people were really scared by it I don't know what was what happened on the ground to me uh, we didn't have any doctor or manager at the training session that day, which is ridiculously unusual, and I have no idea why. But it was something that I had never come across before, so probably the wrong training session to get injured in, but they had obviously decided that it wasn't necessary that day. Um, so I don't know what happened on the ground. I don't know how I was assessed, that I was okay to get up, to move around, to do anything. Uh, the first thing I kind of remember is trying to stand and, and like kind of falling over and stuff like that, being very shook all over the place. Uh, the physio was the person there that was looking after about 40 players at the time. Um, I was taken down the end of the pitch and put sitting on a rocking pad with two of the girls. I think it was Jenny and Gracie. I can't really remember properly, but I think they were the two girls that were there. And I was just put sitting on the rocking pad. Um, I... I was crying. I was it was traumatic. I was crying a lot. I couldn't remember where I was. When I realised I was at a training session, for some reason I thought I was over there doing something, some other drill, like not anything relevant to what we had done that morning, not something we had actually done, so making it up in my own head. Uh I wanted to go back and play. I don't know, it was it was horrible. I was I couldn't stop crying. I was it was so emotional I couldn't stop crying. it was just a a shock to the body, like and the girls were trying to calm me down. Um I went in, I had my lunch, I didn't eat, I cried the whole way through lunch. Uh, I remember one of the one of the girls sitting there going, please stop crying, sitting alongside me. And I couldn't, I just couldn't. I remember Malloy went to the shop and she bought me a can of Coke and a bar of chocolate to try and calm me down. I don't believe I saw anybody from the, I don't believe I saw the physio in that lunch, I don't remember, but I don't think so. Um, I went back onto the pitch to watch the training session in the evening. I definitely hadn't showered or anything like this at this stage. Um, back on the pitch to shower to watch the session that evening and just stand there and watch it. And uh, then I went into the physio before I left and he said he didn't need to do a HIA because it was obvious. A HIA is a head injury assessment. He didn't need to do one because it was obvious I'd been knocked out. 
um, he gave me a handwritten note telling me to make sure somebody woke me up in the morning and to go to an A&E at some point during the week. Um, now, the part of all of this, probably the worst part of all of this, the fact that I didn't get seen by a doctor, I didn't have any scans done, there was no plan to, there was no plan to, to monitor me over any sort of 24-48 hour period, even though it had obviously been a very significant head injury. Um, but the worst part of it was that I had moved to London two weeks ago. I had decided I've one year left playing rugby. I want to be my best for the 2015 World Cup. I'm going to London. I'm going to play, play in Wasps for the year. So I had just moved. So I had flown over from London for the camp. And I was put back on that plane that night to London. Now, I had absolutely no idea what was going on. Um, they didn't take me to the airport. I thought they did. But someone told me recently it was actually one of the players that took us to the airport. Uh, and I went back on the plane to London that night. A uh, couple of hours, let's say at most five hours after being knocked out for 30 seconds. Um, nobody had contacted my partner that I live with in London, so she didn't have a clue. Uh, one of the girls, Jackie, came home with me, and she left me off in Twickenham, so I still had to kind of find my way to the house and stuff like that. Couldn't remember the code to get in the door. And then had to kind of explain something that I couldn't explain because I couldn't remember it. Like, And I explained this to the girls in the house and and all this kind of traumatic stuff that was happening that I really didn't even know what had happened. And hand them this note saying, get up in the morning and go to the A&E Tuesday or Wednesday. And it's just, it, it baffles me and it will baffle me, me forever. I guess it isn't any surprise to me how that period of time under Tom Tierney finished because I guess from a very early stage, I saw that the man had probably very little values in terms of looking after his players. Because, I mean, I don't understand how there was a physio. The director of rugby, Anthony Eddy, was there. And Tom Tierney, the senior coach. I don't understand how them people amongst themselves, how they thought in any part of their mind it was OK for me to go on a flight back to London. Why somebody didn't say... Uh, her father lives in Limerick the girls are travelling back down put her in the car we have people down there with Munster there's hospitals there that she can go straight away to you know all these kind of logical thoughts that I couldn't make because I was not thinking at all because I was in a bad way um, but I don't understand how it was never it was never even discussed uh, I, don't, I don't know it definitely wasn't discussed with me nobody said you want to go home to your father uh, you know and I mean it <laughs> So, like, I mean, for, I, in all of these things, the, the initial treatment is probably the most important thing, even from a monitoring point of view in terms of a head injury and stuff like that. Uh, this is only three years ago, so it's not like this is back in the stone age when head injuries weren't important. Head injuries have been significant parts of rugby now and a significant, uh, there's been awareness on it for maybe the last five or six years. Um, so I was in London. Now, initially, the first, the worst thing was that you have to take three weeks off with a concussion, and that was the worst thing. I was going to miss the start of the season with Wasps. I was just pissed. Like, I was not feeling great, but I was pissed off. Tom had emailed maybe maybe a day or two later to see how it was. And I'd said this kind of like, yeah, I'm feeling okay, like, a bit of a headache, tongue-tied. But, like, he's a big fella for kind of positivity, whether it's real or not. You have to be positive. So you always kind of had to be kind of weird you had to be positive in whatever way you put things across to him you definitely couldn't be writing him going I'm, I'm dying because he wouldn't like that at all like so uh, so I mean I met, I was tongue-tied kind of during the week I went to the a &E, they did some tests to me they were like yeah you know you have the normal symptoms of a concussion 
but like you know and I know from being to a lot of A&E since you're not dying when you go to an A&E and these, these people are there to look after people who are in serious need of help they knew I wasn't dying with this but you know it wasn't really their role to look after me when you say tongue-tied do you mean that you you were struggling to speak or? oh jeez yeah I'd be trying to say something and I'd be tripping over my tongue I could I, like as in not all the time but like if I was talking like this you know after a minute or two of talking the words were just kind of falling on top of each other you know I and I didn't really they said like just stay off your phone stay in the house and you'll be grand and I remember talking to Tom later on that week and this is probably again not being very educated on concussion and certainly not knowing the effects that these things can have and in part my own fault but um, I spoke to him that week and I said look we have tickets for the Ireland-Canada match in in Cardiff I probably shouldn't go oh no girl go enjoy yourself Jesus go Jesus, you have three weeks off now go enjoy yourself you'll be fine you'll be fine so I went and like it wasn't probably a good idea to go into a stadium with 50,000 people with that now I wasn't feeling great but I was also like well it's the only time we've only tickets for this match can't get tickets for any other ones again I didn't know the length I didn't know the effect of, of, of how this could be like you know and I definitely wasn't aware of it so it was fine I went and I felt I was tired when I got home but I was still feeling the same tired or whatever I went to watch the play wasps watch wasps wasps I can't remember saying wasps play the next day and at one point during the match uh, they kicked the ball towards touch towards me and I looked up at it and I could not tell you if I was moving if the sky was moving the ball was moving if it was going to hit me what was going on and I went home that evening and I felt fairly shit and the next day I felt a bit more shit and it got to it, it just gradually not gradually it never got better and it consistently got a little bit worse every single day like what you said there that maybe you were partly to blame yourself for going to the match in the first place I think it's important to highlight like that's in the absence it's by the sounds of it in the absence of proper medical advice that well, yeah, like getting medical advice or I had contact with my physio and he was kind of saying yeah just relax stay off the phone relax the brain relax the brain they wouldn't for some reason give me any contact with the medical department in the RFU I couldn't get a contact definitely couldn't get a phone number for anybody inside there so uh, you know I'm more educated now and I start, but you know what I don't know if that had any effect like for me the effect was shoving me on a plane you know what I mean I don't know if that had, I don't know if any of these things you don't know with, with head injuries they're too unpredictable and people tell you the more you learn about them less, the less you know so you, I don't know if any of these things had a significant effect on the length that my concussion lasted but I do know that they wouldn't have been the right things to do if I had probably been a bit cleverer and maybe advised a little bit better, like, you know. When did you get a scan? Uh, so the, there's so many parts to this. Uh, I got my own scan in December. Uh, I didn't meet an IRFU doctor until the end of January. And when did the concussion happen? September. So, so the way this went was... I kept emailing saying I'm feeling okay today I'm not feeling okay today uh, you know I think I need to see somebody blah 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 and kind of kept getting fobbed off stay in dark room stay in dark room you'll be fine um, they came to a point then that obviously we had an autumn international that year in Twickenham in not Twickenham the other one um, the smaller Twickenham the stoop <laughs> um, against England in November so it came to a point now I think I had been medically they'd already decided I wasn't going to be involved without any consultation to me but eventually about two weeks beforehand I was told I won't be involved in that sure you know blah 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 and that was fine because I obviously knew that but that was devastating for me because I hadn't missed a match in maybe eight years at that stage and it was a big part of my life and it was didn't realise it then but it was my identity like and it was me Um, so I said like okay 
okay, I'm not going to play. That's fine. The team are coming to London, though, and they're staying near Twickenham. Can I go on it? Can I see the team doctor at least? And Tom was like, no, no, that'd be a distraction for the team. I was like, I don't want to to see the team. Like, I haven't asked to see the team. I I want to see the doctor. I'll come at half at midnight if you want. Like, I you don't need to see anybody. I just want to see the doctor. I haven't seen anybody yet. No, not be a distraction. You can't do that. And then I got an email kind of going, I expect to see you there supporting people getting the new caps. Obviously knowing that the person in my position was getting a new cap because there was no other hookers there. They were all new ones at this stage. Like, uh, So emotionally, that was pretty tough. I didn't want to go to the match. The girls kind of made me go and stuff. I was miserable for it. They hadn't been, that wasn't a change from my mood, my most day-to-day mood at that point. Um, and after that, I put out a tweet. It was coming about 10 weeks at that stage, I think. And I put out a tweet saying... Uh, 10 weeks post-concussion uh, bear in mind that I had consistently been in touch with the RFU at this point and still had not received any sort of kind of we need to investigate this there was no like we need to investigate this and it's about to say that you were refused the access to the team doctor at Twickenham yeah, yeah but yeah. expected to come and oh yeah I, the email said support. I expect you to come and support the new caps <laughs> okay grand yeah no bother but I can't come and see the doctor is it so uh, so the so I put out a tweet saying 10 weeks post-concussion uh, still not getting any better something like that anyone got any experience of this I'd say within 20 minutes a senior player in the team had texted me to say Tom's seen that he's not happy to take it down makes you feel bad and I said right okay so I now can't ask anybody else for help but you're refusing to help me okay fine uh, so out of pure stubbornness I left it up for the day and people got in touch with, people did get in touch with me um a lad who deals with a lot of neurological studies and stuff like that up in Dublin got in touch with me and two friends that I bought but that I would know and they would know each other and stuff, both came back with the same contact in Sanctuary for me, saying, this lad deals with this kind of stuff, you need to get on to him. Now, at the time then, I was still obviously saying to the review, I need to see somebody, this isn't getting better. I'd been in an A&E maybe four or five times at this stage, and, and always for the same thing, like, the HIA, go home, you're fine. Um, and at this point, like, I couldn't go to WASP. I At the start, I tried to go down to train and at least be part of something, you know. I couldn't do that anymore because the lights were making the migraines worse and emotionally it was very difficult and, you know, it was tough on my housemates. Like, I was upset that they were leaving me to go train. It was illogical and ridiculous, but it was the mental state that I was in at the time. And um, so they said, oh, you can see, yeah, if you sort it out yourself, we'll pay for you to see a doctor in London if you want. So I got a contact name off a, off a friend over there, a sports doctor, and they were like, yeah, just send us the bill or whatever. And I was like, but like, surely you know somebody like in the RFU or something like that. So I went to this doctor and that was fine. She kind of was like, oh yeah, you know, it's a concussion. I don't know, you know, it's not my position to say if you need scans or not, you need to see if if, if these people, if your own uh, medical department think about that. But, you know, here's a, an emotion tracker, basically a symptom tracker, an Excel sheet where I just had to fill in my things every day. I did that for a while. I filled them in for a couple of weeks. I used to email it on each week to the physio and to to Tom uh, I'd say they didn't do, I'd say Tom didn't open it anyway but um, anyway that was fine so that I guess that was that paying for that was their way of now saying we've helped you so show up you know even though it hadn't changed any anything in my life bar one trip into the centre of London and having an Excel sheet now to play with it hadn't changed anything in my life and there was still no investigation into what was happening and why I was having these symptoms so I decided right I'm going to go over to Santry so this was coming about I'd say this was the end of November start of December around that period of time so we're looking at probably 10 or 11 weeks after maybe 12 weeks after the concussion um 
so I went to Santry. I met the doctor. Um, he straight away sent me for an MRI. Came back. Okay, at least the brain looks normal. First things first. Anxiety is a huge part of that. Was this your first MRI? Yeah. In what month? We're looking at the start of December. I don't know the exact, exact yeah. dates. It would be the end of November, start of December, yeah. It was after that match that was on in Twickenham and that was mid-November. So it was around that. It's To be honest, it's kind of hard to contemplate the time frame of all of it, but it was around that time. So he sent me for the MRI. And straight away it was like, right, well, anxiety is a huge part of this. So you, I can tell you now, there's nothing inside your brain that you've no tumours in there. Like, well, I can't see anything abnormal. That's the first thing that we need to address. Okay, cool. At least I know that that's not something. Because I didn't know that. And you do have these kind of anxieties about that. Uh, so at least that was the first thing that kind of set one piece of me at ease. The second thing then was, you know, they probably should know that the way to deal with concussion now isn't sitting in a dark room, that there are specific tests that we do. Um, they probably are aware of this, but anyway, they hadn't happened. So... Uh, I went he sent me down to their lad their physio that deals with all the concussion and stuff like that and straight away I did a buffalo test which is like an incline uh, treadmill test where you you start walking and they gradually increase the incline you walk at a certain speed and they increase the incline and you then tell them when the when the symptoms change when you suddenly feel a change in symptoms so it doesn't mean you're not perfect going on it but you're gauging what your baseline symptom is to when that then increases so I did that and after a couple of minutes or whatever it was you know I told him and then they give you 60% of that I think it's 60% of that heart rate that you then actually have to go and and exercise with um, and that is how they treat concussion that is the process that I was, I was put through so we did that and that suddenly gave me then something that I could actually work on and he gave me some exercises to kind of look at your balance and stuff like that and moving around and um, and I spent a few weeks going over and back there and that actually did start not clear I never had 24 hours free yeah so I met Tom a few weeks um, previous and you know just to catch up with him and kind of see where things were at and I, I think I had kind of told him at the time that I was disappointed in how I had been um, how he'd been looked at to that point but anyway his his basic advice at that moment was that I would go and run the concussion out of myself that um that I'd feel bad after the first run and then I'd feel a little less bad after the next one and I'd be grand if I just kept doing that and eventually I'd feel okay. And I, I mean, I know at the time I was kind of sitting there going, like, this guy's not a doctor, he shouldn't be giving me any sort of medical advice. But, um, yeah, I, like, was desperate at that point and I did go back to London the next day and take myself down to Richmond Park and, and try and run, run, <laughs> run it out of myself, as he said himself. Uh, now I ran for about 10 minutes, felt like ter terrible in an absolute heap then I'd try and get myself back home like but and and then you know when people were like why'd you do that I was like I don't know but they're like why are you listening to somebody giving you advice that he has not, doesn't know anything about but I mean it was at the point where I, I needed something it, like nothing was changing and things were getting worse uh, I had good days like I had days where I had symptoms but I wasn't dying like I went down to watch the the semi-final of the World Cup, the Men's World Cup, in the fan zone in Twickenham. I had an okay day that day. I kind of probably suffered a bit more the next few days, but I had an okay day. I went into Trafalgar Square with, like, girls that I've known for years from rugby to watch the final. I left immediately to final whistle went, and I went home and I cried for the whole day. Like, you couldn't tell. It was very unpredictable. You couldn't tell. And on the days when you felt okay, 
you kind of had to go out and try and do something because otherwise your life was a misery anyway. And it kind of never seemed to make a difference. I still was, I, I still didn't know what was going to happen the next day. Like initially, I suppose I thought I was probably naive enough to think that I'd wake up some morning and it'd be gone and I'd feel fine. And it just, I realized after a while that that was never going to happen. Like, was this a little bit after you started going to Santry? No. So this was kind of the period before Santry. And then I went to Santry and then they started me on the, the Buffalo. They did the Buffalo test and started me on that kind of exercise protocol. Um, and I was able to do that. Like we had gym sessions in Twickenham for the people because there was a few players based in Twickenham. So we had gym sessions there that we could go to, um, that were supported by an RFU SNC and, I could go and I could like do those basic things at least with somebody there and not on my own. Um, and I did. So like, I mean, the thing was that that actually started helping me. I still wasn't able to go through a day without feeling fine. And I mean, feeling fine could some days depend on having like, like some days I got a massive migraines and, and be really, really low. And other days I just knew I wasn't right. Do you know what I mean? I could have a little headache, but I, I wasn't right. Like something was fuzzy in my head or something like that, you know, and, uh, or maybe I was turning on my head and I was feeling a bit dizzy, but like the symptoms just ranged. They varied in the range and there was kind of very little control over them. And even when I look back on that symptom tracker and I stopped it after a few weeks because I was like, you know, some days I could be, have 60 points on the tracker and other days I could have 15, like the way it was rated and stuff like that. But when I started going to Santry, that did help. And, by the time Christmas came around, I had been doing bits and pieces. Uh, the lad in, in Twickenham in the gym had been kind of looking after me fairly well to be fair to him. Um, and everything was, he was good. Like, you know, he definitely knew not to push things, but he was good. And Tom floated the idea that if I got myself sorted, I'd have a bit of a part in the end of the Six Nations. I, you know, I mean, at that point, that was all I wanted. I certainly didn't think that I would never wear an Irish jersey again. And for me, it was like how soon I could get back. It like is in the the normal logical protocol of going, well, I have to play club and then I have to play this and then I have to go back to Ireland. I just wanted to be back in, in that Irish jersey, you know. Um, so I remember going down to the pitch in UL one day over the Christmas period um, and I decided to do a conditioning session, a bit of running. And running kind of straight line had been okay at that point, like low intensity running, nothing too strenuous, but run a straight line. But I decided to do a turnabout thing. Like 20 minutes out, 20 meters back. And like, it went really wrong for me. Like I ended up, I'd say on the pitch line there for about a half an hour on my own, like in a heap, kind of getting sick a little bit, but feeling like literally like I couldn't stand up. And at that moment then I was like, I have had enough. I didn't even make it home that night. I went to one of the girls' house that would live close and in a heap, I arrived in like white as a ghost like to them. And I stayed there for the night. Um, and at that stage, yeah, I'd had enough. And I remember sending a message to a few of the girls that I'd be quite close to on the team saying, lads, like, you know, this is after happening. Like, and they're still, they still buried that one doctor that they would pay for, that they hadn't recommended, but that they would pay for. There was still nobody saying inside in there saying, well, this girl's been out of action for three months now. Uh, like we haven't seen her. We don't know why she's not getting better. She hasn't had a day without symptoms and nobody was still kind of owning the responsibility to investigate it. And I had obviously taken it on my own back to try and investigate it. So they said, look, there's a new one in the medical department now. Um, you need to email her and tell him I've had enough this is it now I've had enough you need to help me and I'm asking you for help you have to listen to me so I sent that email to her now 
definitely not her fault, but she kind of had never really heard of me. She didn't know who I was. So I had to fill her in on my history. She, I definitely wasn't a player that she was actively monitoring anyway because she had never touched base with me or anything like that. She hadn't started the road that much longer, a few weeks previous. But, you know, so I touched base with her. She came back to me. She said uh, she would organise a meeting after Christmas with them, not with me, but with them to discuss what should happen. Um now, over that period of time, I had been on Tyrupa. I had asked Tyrupa to help me. And then, very sympathetic, they'd put me in touch with people who had suffered concussions before that I could speak to about feelings. and That's the Players' Union? Yeah, the Players' Union. Yeah. I think they're rubbing Ireland now, but Tyrupa at the time. Um, and, you know, very supportive. They had had a meeting with, apparently had had a meeting with the staff of the RFU about this. I had been told I couldn't know the contents of the meeting. But... Uh, they had had the meeting about me. Like it was, it was weird. It was, there was, I couldn't, I, I couldn't know anything about the meeting that I was, it was about me, like, you know. So, I mean, it was always very cloak and dagger kind of stuff. And they, so she said, oh, well, organize a meeting now for when we come back after the Christmas break. Now, in that time, I, uh, I'd say I not, I wasn't at the lowest of the low. I've been there since, but I was at the, at the lowest point at that moment. Um, so I got on to one of the boys from the senior team, the or the men's Irish team, um, who had a concussion in the past. And I knew him. Uh, so I just sent him a message saying, like, can I have a chat with you? Uh, just to see what you did. Like, if anything is similar, if there's any route that I haven't gone down myself because they're not doing anything. And he said, give me a call there. So I rang him, spoke to him for about two hours, I'd say, one night. Um like the best lad, like, you know, and told me that over the period that he had the concussion in the space of four weeks, he had seen, he had obviously seen a doctor first. He had got a head CT and an MRI. He had seen a neurologist and then had been sent to a vestibular specialist and, and was basically sitting there going, the things that are happening to you sound very similar to the things that happened to me. So, you know, I suggest that you go see this specialist. Uh, he was mad, like he was annoyed. He couldn't believe that they weren't looking after me. He wanted to make the phone call himself to to say what the hell and I guess in in anything and you kind of regret not standing up for yourself I don't think it would have made any good anyway but like you're always kind of like you know for me the Irish jersey was the most important thing to me I've never been looking for any sort of publicity or anything like that like just playing was enough for me so I wasn't going to go shouting from the rooftops about this and trying to and pissing people off and being more of a problem because I felt like that was going to, especially in the environment at the time, I felt like that would affect future selection for me. So when he said, I'll ring him and I'll tell him he needs to look after you immediately, I was like, please don't ruffle the feathers here. Like, you know, I I obviously didn't know how it was going to turn out, but I was like, I'm sure it'll be fine. Like there's probably, that's probably going to get me in hot water. So don't do that, you know. And see, at the in terms of the symptoms, what was it like from a physiological point of view, but also from a psychological point of view when you were at your lowest trying to get through this thing? Like, so it just, I, I you know, you kind of think at the time you think you're at the lowest of the low, but actually then you realise that you can go much deeper. Like, um and after that Christmas period, uh, things got much worse, like much worse, the anxiety. And I definitely think anxiety is a huge thing in it. And the fact that I was now approaching a Six Nations that I was not going to be involved in. Um, 
that that was a crippler like that that because I mean I've explained my emotional attachment to the team so I get how people kind of say ah sure look it's just a team like it's grand get over it. it it wasn't like that for me and I understand that maybe my reaction to it is more emotional than other people's but like I couldn't understand how I wasn't going to play a Six Nations I it was my identity it had been my identity for maybe eight years and you don't realize these things until you lose them and you don't never realize what you have tilt is gone but like it was everything to me and I felt like nothing of a person. Um, and I mean, after I, so I did have vestibular problems and I went to that lad, the lad, a lad that he had suggested. I had an involuntary flicker in my eye. I could, so every time I was turning my head, my eyes were, were flickering on their own. Um, and all of that had been caused by the, the bang in the head and stuff. I couldn't walk a straight line, turning my head without ending up in the wall. Like, you know, um, and, that was fine. He like there was a million and one tiny, tiny, tiny exercises that you had to do. That probably took about five months, I'd say, for me to actually get under control. But like tiny little things. But like you know, something that could have been addressed very early on had it been investigated, but wasn't. So obviously, it was now four months down the line, and I was only suddenly realizing that this had this was an issue. Like, um, but at that point then, in that Six Nations period. I got really, I got really bad and like my symptoms kind of just went out of control. Um, I had kind of tinnitus in my ears, which destroyed me mental if I was in anywhere that was kind of not with noise. Like, um, my whole body had kind of turned into, I, my kind of central nervous system was just breaking down on me and it was crashing. My body almost felt like it was attacking itself because I could hold my hand out in front of me and I could see that my hand wasn't physically shaken, but it felt like every nerve and muscle in my body was just shaken and I was trembling all the time. And I mean, you know, you think the worst in these things, you think Parkinson's, you think MS, you think like that, but... Uh, like I, there was no explanation for any of this and certainly nobody was approaching me with any explanations for these things. And it just got worse and worse. And like I moved home from London, which was probably the worst thing I, I could have done because I thought if I came home to some normality, maybe I'd be fine. But it was actually better with the people who were supporting me in London than putting myself in my own bubble at home because I just got lower and lower again. Like, um, and when you say lower, do you mean like, were you feeling? I was so depressed, like. And Europa had offered me like six counselling sessions, which is standard for them to offer any player who has any anything that they need to talk about and stuff like that. And it didn't matter. Like I was sitting with your man, nice lad. It didn't matter what I was telling him. Like none of, nothing that I could even talk about was giving me back what I wanted, which was to go back and play rugby and play for Ireland. But like there was days when all I could think about was that playing for Ireland and having that feeling again. And then there was days where I wish I, I wouldn't care if I never saw anything in rugby ever again in my life. If I could just have one day without symptoms, like it was, it was that up and down, like, um, and I wasn't very good to the people around me. I, you feel the knock on effect in relationships. People only take so much, like, you know, and especially kind of in head injuries because people don't really realize, I guess there's more awareness now and mental illness and stuff like that. But, People don't realize really what you're going through. And a lot of it is kind of like, you'll be grand, you'll be grand, go on, you're fine, come on, it's fine, it's not the end of the world. But like, uh, you know, I was really struggling. Like I couldn't find who I was as a person anymore. I had people around me that really loved me and cared for me. And to be honest, they just became my punching bag. Like, and you know, I had my, my bad days. Like I said, I found it hard for my friends to even leave the flat and go play a match. Cause it was almost like they were abandoning me and like, I had no right to feel like that. I had no, there was no logic in feeling like that. It wasn't anything to do with them. But I mean, you know, you feel like that and 
it's very hard to pull yourself out of that hole, especially when you had the physical symptoms as well with it, like that I just couldn't get rid of, I couldn't shake them. Like, um, So like by the end of January, they actually had organised a meeting to see me um, and there had been a new doctor appointed and stuff like that. Uh, so you could never get a phone number for him. The phone numbers weren't allowed. All you could have was emails. So this meeting was organised or whatever. So... I arrived up to, to Dublin hoping that there was a game plan in place, like, you know, uh, it had been four months at this stage, like, and this was now my first actual contact with somebody physically in the medical department. Um, so I went in and shake hands and the whole lot. And kind of the first thing he said to me was, Geez, you've had a great career, haven't you? I was like, yeah, 51 caps and counting there. Uh, yeah, like, you know, you've had a great career. There's no shame if you have to retire now in an injury. There's no shame in it at all. It happens to a lot of people, but, you know, there's no shame. And I was just, like, pissed off, baffled, confused. Like, this dude had never seen me in his life. He hadn't assessed me. He had obviously spoke to the people. He knew who I'd been in contact with in Sentry and stuff like that. He would have had a... Con- I, I guess he would have... I think he probably did have a conversation with them about how I had been getting on and stuff like that. But none of them had ever told me, Jill, you won't play rugby again. You have to retire. So for me to walk into that room that day and his basic tone of the meeting was, you'll be finishing up now. I was just like, I don't know where this has come from. It certainly, it wasn't, it was, I don't, I don't know what it was like, but it definitely wasn't uh, some sort of an educated thing that he had, he he was telling me like, and I kind of flipped a little bit that day with him and, you know, really kind of said, you have to realize how unhappy I am about this. Like you have to realize that this has been four months of my life where I've had some good days and maybe gone to work some days, but most days where I was self-employed, I haven't earned any money. I've had to move home from London, a life that I, uh, you know, was really looking forward to. I've had no support. You have to realize that I'm not happy with this. And now you're telling me that I have to retire without any sort of actual investigation on your behalf. Like I was at your camp. This was your camp. I was there because you invited me to be there. Uh, you have to realize that you have some level of responsibility here. And I got really annoyed with him. I said, you have to send me to a neurologist. I'm shaking the whole time. I can't sleep. I'm trying to lie down and go to sleep. My ears are going mad. I'm shaking. I'm crying. I have headaches. Like, I I can't keep doing this. Like, I really can't keep doing this or whatever. And he was like, no, no, we won't send you now to a neurologist. Uh, we'll leave it a couple of weeks and see if it dies down. And I was just like, you're not getting me. Like, it hasn't died down and it's got worse. And we're now going into the period of Six Nations where I'm not going to play. I'm going to be expected to show up to the matches to support my teammates. To be quite honest, my team have abandoned me because my friends and the team keep in contact. But actually, as a team, it's just you're out, she's in, keep going. Like any normal team, I guess. But like, not normal for me, you know, to be out of it. Um, so he wouldn't send me to a neurologist. And I, I guess there was a conversation had about that meeting with him and whoever else was there. But that was grand anyway. Like at this stage of the game, are you thinking about going back playing rugby or are you thinking about sort of day-to-day survival? It it depended. Like most days, most days at the back of my head was that I'd always go back and play rugby. Like, you know, I, I definitely never expected it to drag on as long as it did. I I knew that it wasn't disappearing, but I didn't expect it to drag on as long as it, as it was going to. And I still saw the 2017 Home World Cup, my last year probably playing for Ireland. I was going to retire after that. You know, like that was still the end goal. 
and I had a reason that I wanted to go do it and that was the end goal and stuff like that. So, I mean, that was always in the back of my head. Okay, if I have to sit out of Six Nations, I don't want to. The end goal was to be able to compete for my position in the World Cup. like, um, And I, like, I don't know, but it was hard to kind of see that some days because I couldn't see that I was actually getting any better and I couldn't see any kind of action that was making me better. You know, I was now, I mean... Uh, when I moved home to, like, the move, the idea to move home to Ireland was not my suggestion. Like, it was their suggestion. Tom had suggested move home. There'd be people around there. And when I got home and I asked for who was looking after me, like, is it the doctor in Munster or who's looking after me? Oh, no, no, no. You're just going to report back to us and tell us how you're feeling. And I was like, hang on, but you said, like, there'll be people to look after me. No, 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 like monsters separate to the RFU. No, 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 you couldn't be seeing their doctors. You're just going to tell us how you're feeling. And, you know, you can go to the gym sessions if you need. They're there for you and stuff like that, blah, blah, blah. So it was just completely like wash your hands of her. madness. Yeah, nothing, nothing was, like, they really didn't want any responsibility for me. Um, at what stage did things start to turn? So after I had that meeting, kind of mid-January, the end of January, about two weeks later, I was in Thome Park doing a schools cup match and not a bad turn had to go out, take myself out to the a &E and stuff like that uh, and as usual sat there for hours for the same kind of you're not dying so go home I actually think that night I left on my own accord I just decided I'm going home after a couple of hours and I emailed them and said I've had enough like you either send me to your just now or I'll have to go a different route on this and um, so they made what did you mean by that like, at that stage I didn't really know what I meant by it did I need to go public with it and say, look, you're not looking after me? I mean, it looked like I was never going back there anyway. But like at the same time, like I said, you know, these people control who plays for the team. Yeah. So you create yourself as an issue. They don't have to pick you for anything, as I found out later. Nobody has to pick you. It doesn't matter if you're good or bad. Like they can pick who they want. Like, so, I mean, I went out to any whatever, he sent the email. He said, yeah, Grand will send you to a neurologist there and we'll cover it. Oh, great. Thanks a million. So I went to neurologist and he told me then uh, that I had post-traumatic migraine syndrome um, from the concussion. Uh, that was probably the reason for, that was the reason for everything. The, the migraines, the anxiety, the the, sh the shake and everything like that. All of this was related to that. So he put me on two different types of medication. He said like they're not going to kick in straight away, but they will kick in and hopefully you're going to feel better. But look, we're going to revisit this in a few weeks. So that was grand, took the medication after about, and at that point, like kind of, this was in in the Six Nations time now at this stage. And at that point I had to just let it go. Like I had to try and live some sort of life that wasn't miserable and depressing and thinking about rugby. So I just had to kind of go, I'm going to take the medication and see what happens. Like, so I took that and it didn't change initially, but maybe five, six weeks later, uh, I actually started feeling better and it didn't mean that symptoms were completely gone but I wasn't shaking as much the migraines weren't uh, as hard or as frequent um, I went back and I spent the last few months in London and kind of by I'd say the end of May, June the vestibular stuff had started sorting itself out as well um, and you know I went back to him and basically I even took one of the girls with me because I was kind of like I don't remember too much anymore so would you come so that you will hear the logic in what's being said just in case I hear it different or the way that I'd like to hear it, you know. So he basically said, like, you can, you can, playing again, like, won't create any more damage, 
like you can't do any more damage it's not advisable you get another bang in the head but like you're probably not going to do any more damage but you do have to realize that if you get another bang in the head you may end up in the same situation again with these symptoms and stuff like that uh playing with like this post-traumatic migraine syndrome this mig- these migraines probably aren't going to go away you're going to have um you're going to have migraines any sort of increase in intensity increase in blood flow is going to create migraines in the head and look at the fact is like when you go into contact you're not going to be able to handle you're not going to be able to handle them so he said you know i'm advising you that i don't think you should go play again but i'm telling you that you can try if you want so i mean then i had a decision to make do i try or do i walk away with my pride as an injured player and say I had to retire an injury and look back really fondly on my career or do I kind of go for it but the positive side of the thing is is that you are back playing now yeah <laughs> yeah so how did that happen so like I went back so basically then I gave this information back to the powers that be and then I was told, well, okay, now, so you've been cleared by a neurologist, so you're no longer the responsibility of the RFU. So if anything happens to you in the future now, you better make sure that your club are able to cover you. <laughs> I was laughing. I was like, why have you actually done so far? Nothing. I was never your responsibility in the first place. So they refused to do a return to play with me. They sent me documents on how you should do a return to play. They refused to give me access to anybody who could actually monitor it. Never once did they do a session with me. So... Like, to be fair, my club have always been good to me and Munster have always been good to me. So I moved back home here um, and we were training with Munster over the summer. The lads there looked after me and your man was right. Like I had massive migraines from the moment we started the warm up. My head was absolutely banging and I hated every single second of a session and people were afraid to tackle me and they tackled me and they'd get up and they'd be looking at you going, are you OK, are you OK? Cause like people, I was a, I was an eggshell. I wasn't probably comfortable for other people to be around either. Um and I played three games with Bose and in the third game I had made my decision at that point I'm going to play this game and then I think I'm done because I can't handle this anymore it was miserable and I hated it and I couldn't handle my head was exploding it was coming out through my eyes my head was exploding and everything and I had lost my confidence because nobody had kind of done a proper return to play with me I had kind of had to wing it on my own so I had lost my confidence in in tackling basically the only thing what I was tackling and it's a pretty huge part of the game um anyway in that match I was trying to rob a ball in the rock and somebody rolled me out of it and I dislocated my ankle and my knee. So that was like a new, a new problem. Uh, and maybe that was actually the best thing that happened to me because that I had an operation on my ankle straight away. Obviously I was still looking to that six nations and the following world cup the next year. Um, I had the operation straight away. I needed to play Munster. I was going to miss now the club season, but I needed to play Munster in December to give them a reason to call me back into camp, which I never doubted. I knew once I got back in my confidence, I never doubted my ability as a player and I never doubted that there would be any question why you wouldn't bring a 51 cap international into a camp when you have people there who are learning and need a bit of guidance and, you know, are raw in the game and need really need to improve. Like, So I got back from Munster. Uh, first match, I was terrible. Second match, a bit better. Third match, better again. Um I was doing all the sessions I'd been I had been doing all the condition the skill sessions with the Ireland stuff at that stage um and the and the the weight sessions and then an email came out after Christmas saying uh, about nine of us got it this pretty badly worded email basically saying none of you are in consideration for the Six Nations and I like apart from the fact that my heart fell out of out of my arse I literally was like how like I know that I may not be at the level I'm at but you don't have to question the standard I can be at I've proved that 51 times like 
but somebody has to give me a chance somewhere and at the moment you've moved the goalposts and every opportunity and I can't hit any targets that you asked me for. So I went to your man. I sat, I went to Tom after a skill session after that email was sent. I said, I don't understand. Like you keep moving the goalposts. You told me I could come to camp. Then you tell me you don't bring injured players to camp. Then I hear there's three girls sitting on a bike for the weekend because they're injured. Like you have told me I could come in September. Then you tell me I have to play cup games. Now you're telling me I'm not involved in Six Nations. How do I get back? What do I have to do for you? And he turned around and he said to me, I don't care that you're the best hooker in the country. I don't have to pick you. And I was just like, like, why am I here? Why did I, why did I even try and come back? Like, what was the point? Like, if you have it in your head that you're not picking me for definitely a reason that's not rugby related, whatever it is. Um, and it mightn't even have been his decision. I don't even think it probably was his decision, to be honest. I think that came from somebody up above, but, uh, I just couldn't understand it. Like, and yeah, I didn't get picked, never got picked again, didn't get back into the World Cup squad. I finished the skill sessions because I never wanted to give up on anything, you know, and I, that was probably the reason I didn't walk away in the first place. I think you regret the things you don't try, like, and, you know, I couldn't walk away knowing that maybe I could have played in that World Cup. Um, and it was a tough year. Uh, mentally, it was pretty hard. It got lower and lower. All my friends were off training every weekend in camps and stuff. I still wasn't involved in anything. It's completely out of the loop now. There was a load of new players and stuff that, you know, some of them were looking really well. Some of them were questionable roles. I was hearing things like he had 10 people trying to throw the ball at training into the line out the other day and they were hitting the corner flag and they were hitting the car park and they couldn't hit the line out and stuff. And you're just going, it, it, none of it made any sense to me. Like, you know. How does he end up packing? actually fan now so like so I, when I had the operation I came back and I never had a headache again okay. I don't know was it the fact that uh, when I came back from once to then I don't know was it just the fact that I had kind of two new yeah. like I had a, a high grade two on my medial and I had ruptured my ATFL so I don't know was it just a new injury to concentrate or something like that but I've never had a headache on the pitch again like and it was weird like because at that point when I got them I was definitely finishing I couldn't do any more like um, it's weird how things pan out like and it, I don't even know if it panned out the best way maybe I was better off leaving at that point because I emotionally went through an awful time then after it like in the in the build up to the World Cup and you know all the publicity and everything surrounding it and sure I didn't care about any of that but I just wanted to be involved it was a home World Cup it was it was a huge opportunity Um, I worked at the World Cup I went and I worked as an analyst at the World Cup and I supported my friends and I supported the people around me but I mean, we all know how the World Cup went and it was no surprise to me because I had felt the the change in, in what, I don't know, feeling, the change in uh, the va- the values of the team. I had cha- felt the change in the values of the team, obviously, an awful lot earlier than everybody else. But I mean, I watched my friends at that World Cup that I had played with in the previous World Cup. They were half the player they used to be. Their attitudes, they looked like, they looked broken on the pitch. They, the team performed terribly from what was expected of them and from what the potential was leaving the last World Cup. And really through, I don't know, I don't know how it actually got to that point, but through that three year period while he was coaching and other people were involved, it basically broken off a lot of players. It broke their confidence. It, 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 and it ended up in an environment where people kind of were ended up looking after themselves instead of looking after each other, which is what we always would have had, like I explained before. Uh, I've spoke with the girls, like, a lot of them feel like I got out alive and I got out lucky and I finished on a good way and I can enjoy 
every memory I ever had in an Irish jersey because a lot of them didn't enjoy finishing like that shameful at the World Cup everybody talking about how bad they were you know that's a horrible thing when you have a responsibility in an Irish jersey to be criticised and you have to expect it as part of the role and with the job and with the new media attention to it you have to expect that people are going to criticise you but it was hard for a lot of people that had fantastic memories like me to then finish an Irish jersey walking off the pitch crying in, in Belfast. But we've kind of talked about this a little bit before about how you're you're now back playing rugby, but are you back playing rugby for the reasons that sort of drew you to rugby in the first place now? So like by the time we got to this time last year, when I played my last club match with Bowes and we had done the treble, we had won all the three, the three, the cup, the Monster Cup and the league. And I remember walking off the pitch up in... Uh, where the final was at, I think it was Portlaoise maybe or somewhere um, holding on to the two girls and crying because it was my last time playing rugby because I hated it so much I had hated every moment of the last kind of year and a half I I loved my teammates I loved my friends but I didn't feel anything for rugby anymore every time I played it was for pressure and every time I tried my best I was getting kicked back down again and I didn't I didn't want to play anymore I couldn't put myself in that environment anymore it was emotional torture and I didn't like rugby I didn't want to play like and I it was my last, I just didn't want to play and I was done and I needed to move on. And then over the summer, the summer just last year, uh, Laura Guest was appointed the Munster head coach. And I know Guestie for years. I went to college with her, I played with her for years. Um, and she rang me and said, there's two people I want to be involved in this team and you're one of them. Will you play? And I was like, I really don't think I can give you what you want here, girl. Like, I'm not the same person. I'm not the same player. My confidence was shot, like, and I felt like nothing because I had lost my, as I explained, it was my identity and I had lost that and lost it really hard. And never, the thing that crippled me was that I was never given one chance. I was never brought back to an Irish training session again after the day I got knocked out. Um, And it killed me that I had never been given one chance. Put me in a training session with all these other players and let us fight it out. And you can walk and tell me at the end of that weekend, now you can see you're not good enough. And then I just have to accept it. But I was just never given a chance. I always felt like the girls walked into an empty jersey. They didn't have to take it off the best player at the time. And that's how I feel about it. Like, And it's fine. Like Now it's their jersey. It's never anybody's jersey, but you, you occupy it for a while. You want to leave it in the best way possible. Uh, I didn't feel like anybody had fought me for it and I had fought my way into it and I felt like and I know this stuff happens and people get opportunities with injuries and all that kind of stuff that's just how I felt about it like um, so Guesty asked me and I said I don't know I'm not too interested to be honest like of course I want to play for Munster but I don't think I can put myself through it she said come down to the first session like please I, I want you to be involved so I went down to the first session and when we were there she said look I have to tell you um, we're going to be playing Barbarians in Thoman Park in November it's their first fixture they've just set up a women's barbarians team it's going to be their first fixture um, and we're, we're the opposition and you know that's cool and I actually was kind of going that is cool like I did have plans to move away at that point and I put them on hold because I was like that's actually another little piece of history I've been part of every good piece of history in the last eight years of Irish rugby this is another 
piece piece of history. So yeah, I want I want to be part of this. Like, and Gessie was the coach, and Gessie's an excellent coach, and she knows people, and she knows players, and she knows how to have a good relationship with people because she's been there as a player. Um, and her training sessions were fun, and they you were learning something, and they were well driven, and I enjoyed playing, and I enjoyed driving down to Fermoy to do the training sessions, and I started kind of enjoying club again and stuff like that. And we played that Barbarians match in November, and it was amazing. Like, I got to play against people that I used to play with in Ireland. I got to play against girls that I used to play with in England. And it was, it was really cool. It was a special moment. And I was delighted that I'd been involved in it. And I mean, like that started changing my opinion of rugby again, because now I was actually playing for fun again. I knew, I knew because especially towards the end, coming up to the World Cup, I had, I, I had asked them questions. I had sent an email asking questions and asking for a meeting as to why um, I wasn't looked after just to explain to me this, the, the thought process and all of this because I couldn't see that I de- that I had been looked after the way any other international player male or female would have been looked after and I had been declined that or whatever so you know I by the time I like so that had really cemented the fact that I was never going back to Ireland I knew especially with the people involved there that because I had sent that email that I had just kind of signed my own debt warrant I was never going back anyway but like that was very definite that that was going to looking back now why do you think you were treated like that is it because you're a member of the women's team nah no it was a personal thing like and I just I asked like I actually asked one of the other coaches at the World Cup and it has, I don't think it had, I don't think it had anything to do with my rugby. It was a personal thing at the time. Uh, you can see like a lot of the senior players that were involved over the last few years, you know, it, it because you can, you can notice the change in them and how they were coached and how they, they ended up being as players and stuff like that. And it was, uh, for me, it just felt like anybody who was a senior player probably wasn't really welcome inside there. Do you think it was a personal thing? with another individual or with wholesale with the IRFU personal thing? Uh, no, it wasn't an IRFU personal thing. I mean, I worked for the IRFU with the Sevens for years. I played with them for years. I've been looked after them. And the other, I've never had any problem with one coach. I've never been disciplined for anything. It wasn't an IRFU thing. It was the new people involved in women's rugby in Ireland, like, and the values that they hold close to them. And they, like, I don't genuinely believe they reflect any of the values that rugby has. But, um, it, it it was hard to be a senior player there. Let's put it like that. Like you couldn't really ask questions. I remember the first season I was there, that 2015 season, the first season that they were involved. And I, uh, me and Malloy went to do a switch and it didn't come off. And I flicked the ball out the back door and she knocked it on. And we laughed about it and said, ha, feck it. Uh, now, the previous coaches, Greg and, and Goose, and then um, I'd always encouraged you to play an open game, heads up rugby, you try everything. You try everything at training, you try everything. You know, we don't shy away from from being the best and being as good as we can be. So I did this stupid flick out the back door. I was put aside at the end of the training session and told that I was a senior player and that I had to lead by example and that was an idiotic thing to do and I couldn't be doing things like that. And I was kind of like, what the hell? Like, all right, like relax about it. Is that kind of like dampens your freedom of expression in the game? Is that is that kind of what it is? It or? was more like... Like, that's not how we're going to play. And you saw the way they played. Give the ball to the forwards. We'll cr- keep crashing it up. One up, one up, one up, Rugby. And then we'll give it out to the backs. Like, there was no creativity in any way that the team have played. And they don't play like that anymore. And the creativity that we had and the playmakers that we had a couple of years ago, they're not the kind of players that are in the team now. Like, it's a style of rugby. 
it's not saying it's the wrong style of rugby, but it was different to the style that had got us to finish fourth in a World Cup. And yeah, I mean, I was, I am a vocal player. I feel like I've earned my right to have an opinion on something that's going on on the pitch. I have 51 caps. I have been there through all the highs and the lows, just like any of the other girls that are there. Any player has a right to have an opinion and question something that's going on the pitch. I And I think women are different in the fact that they don't, you can't tell a woman, just go over there and run that line because they will ask you why. And you have, and men find that hard when they come in to coaching women because women ask a lot of questions. Like, but it's not a bad thing, but it was something that wasn't really welcomed. And I feel like I maybe was just a thorn in the side. I don't know. Maybe they just thought I was a terrible player, but I feel like my history of playing would have given me, I feel like even if I was a terrible player, you would look at somebody's history and say, well, she's not in her best moment right now. So we'll we'll bring her back up and see if we can get her back to the level. That's how I feel it should have been handled. You mentioned something a couple of times um, over the last while about the values of rugby. Yeah. And what do you feel the values of rugby are? Because I feel like at recent times, through one thing or another, the, the rugby's kind of getting a bad rap in terms of the, the attitude or the, um, like specifically I'm kind of thinking about the recent trial that we had about the, the sexual abuse trial that was on very like, prominent in the Irish media in recent times I think that that cast rugby in quite a poor light generally speaking because of the people that were involved in it but what are the values of rugby? Well for me like I mean they have the the, the ones of integrity and honesty and respect and I mean respect and honesty are kind of you know, they're good qualities for anybody to have in their life but they're shown hugely through rugby you respect the people that you play with you know, you you train your hardest so that you don't and you're honest with yourself and everything that you do so that you don't let the other people on the pitch down and you don't let yourself down. Um and like it is it is a family. It's the kind of place that maybe you know, I'm I'm a bigger I'm not a massive girl, but I'm a bigger girl than normal. And maybe I wouldn't have found a place in a soccer team. Maybe I wouldn't have found a place in a GAT team because physically maybe I wouldn't have been good enough to get to an elite level but like rugby is a team for everybody there is a position for every kind of person whether you're bigger but that means you're stronger or you're 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 a whippet and you can fly out in the wing or you've got a good eye for space you know what I mean there is there is literally a place for everybody at every level of the game it's the thing that draws people into it is that it's so inclusive and it's a family and like people who go into rugby you, you'll you know from, from when we were in college like my family in rugby in college was in rugby like I hung out with the lads in class because we were in class together and I hung out with people in class or whatever but in the evenings I lived with rugby people and I hung out with rugby people and I went down to the lodge with rugby people in my tracksuit pants you know what I mean like so I mean it is about having that feeling of be- belonging to something and belonging to something really special and I think anybody that's in, involved in it can tell you that they they have that feeling um and it's that kind of willingness to to look after each other and look out for each other. Because um, you have to, on a, in a contact sport, you have to look out for each other. You know what I mean? If you go into into something and somebody's not backing you up there, you're going to get mangled. Like so, you you need that. Like and you need that trust amongst each other, um, and the respect of each other that you can look at each other at the end of the match and say, "Look, I I gave a hundred percent." And it's not it is a field sport and it is the same in every other sport that everybody has to look at each other and say that you gave 100% but you physically have to put your body on the line you physically have to put yourself in harm's way to help out the rest of your team and it's obviously a choice that you do and you don't worry about it but like you physically have to do it like you can't back out of things you have to be honest with yourself and you have to respect that everybody else is going to do the same for you like as an international player and a very experienced international player at that and a role model and someone who holds those values like 
very closely. And of course, like someone who feels a very uh, emotional connection with rugby, like you described earlier, how did you feel recent and recently whenever the whole um, rape trial was going on uh, in the media and stuff like that? Because you're kind of the equivalent uh, of like what the team that was in the limelight for, uh, in a negative way on that trial, you're the, the equivalent side on the female tr- uh, side, I guess. Like, yeah. So you're kind of, it seems like you're kind of well positioned to be kind of throw a bit of light on how that played out for, for rugby in general. Well, like for rugby, obviously it's, it's hugely negative to think that, that it's negative to have it associated with rugby because it's not really what rugby is about. And, and most people you come across, you know, don't show that side of it not in my experience anyway um I guess in terms of the trial you know everybody's going to come down on one side or the other some people support the boys some people support the girls like at the end of the day none of us really know what happened there was a verdict and you kind of just have to accept that I think if you you when you look at it and you look at the the factual things that came out of it like the WhatsApp group and the messages that were sent on it, like they are factual things. They are things that were physically said, degrading women and being very disrespectful. And for me, like those lads play at an, at an elite level, you know, I mean, people pay money every week. They put their heart and soul into following the teams that they're involved in. Young fellas look up to them. They inspire them. They're their heroes it's not a good message to to show that this is how you feel, whether it's behind closed doors or not. They aren't they aren't the values of people involved in rugby, and it reflects poorly on rugby because it makes it look like every rugby rugby lad is saying this kind of stuff. I don't believe that's true at all. But I mean, I think if you look at it, like that's what that's what happened, and it looks like basically rugby lads are just, you know, talking about women and doing all this kind of stuff. Sure, I mean, that's in every walk of life. But at the end of the day, these boys have responsibility to the jerseys that they wear and to the people that look up to them and and support them and follow them around the world supporting them. You know, you have a responsibility f- for for that. And I think in everything you do, whether you wear the Irish jersey once or you wear it 50 or 100 times, you always have to be mindful of the fact that somebody at some point has probably looked at you and said, oh, fair play, like, I'm, I'm proud of her. I don't even know her, but I'm proud of her. You know what I mean? And, and that is, that happens for everybody. Like, so to, to, for, for that to come out that they were speaking like that and stuff like that, like, I think they probably just need to go away and look at their own values as opposed to the values of rugby. But it, it is difficult because obviously they're very highly connected. And whatever happens in their professional career, you know, that's that's one thing. But I mean, it's probably their own values that they need to go look with. I can't believe that they feel very proud about themselves. I don't know, you know. Over the years, women and sport has been something that's been, I guess, largely under-supported in Ireland. But do you think we're moving in the right direction now? No, not really. Well, I don't know. I don't, I'm not going to speak about other sports because I guess I don't know. But in terms of rugby, no, I don't think so, no. I it's mean, gone backwards? I suppose you can't really say it's going backwards, but it's not going forwards. You know what I mean? Like as in, not in Ireland. Now, if you look at other nations, like uh, the French girls went semi-professional before the World Cup. The English girls went full-time professional before the World Cup. New Zealand just handed out maybe 30 full-time contracts to 15s players. Um, all the sevens players around the world are probably professional um, but in terms of 15's rugby point of view, like the game is becoming more professional and it's something that needs to happen because, you know, you do ask people to do maybe nine sessions a week 
and work their full-time job, give up all their free time. You know, you leave the house at six o'clock in the morning to go to a gym session. You probably don't return home till 10 o'clock at night. It, it does become your life if you want to play at that level. Like, um, and it does need to be supported better, but it's not going forward. Like there's always a lot of talk about investing in the grassroots level, but it's not invested in. Like you don't see it. We don't feel it in our club. We don't feel it at Munster. You're still fighting to get a t-shirt that fits you in your, in Munster. Like, you know what I mean? When we were playing the Barbarians, we were supposed to be on before the men's Barbarians matches, an opening match a few weeks earlier. Then we were told actually we were being bumped to two o'clock or something in the day because, uh, they wanted a kids place to be on because it made more money. Now, eventually the way things panned out, we played a few hours before the boys and that was fine. But, those things should never be in question. Like if you were a senior team and you're an elite level team, you should be tra- treated the same as the men. And there, there is no, there is never, there should never be any doubt about the fact that people put in uh, the time and the work and the effort to do the same thing that the boys do. It's nothing to do with the boys. It's just the idea that it's not the same, that we don't make money. And it's almost like devaluing your green jerseys were less than his green jersey. It's not like that, you know. It's interesting though because in the last couple of years the ladies Gaelic football has seen a massive yeah. a jump in popularity and in support as well from the media point of view and I guess from a spectator point of view. Yeah. It has jumped up big time. Now even this week we had the thing with the Irish team going to Australia or not going to Australia as the case may be. Yeah, well like I mean the thing is publicity is publicity is great and people always support a winning team. And I think our period of time where that 2014 World Cup where we got ourselves up to fourth, like that drew an awful lot of external people in to, to watch matches. Actually, the Grand Slam probably did it because I remember in the, the 2014 and one of the girls telling me that she was sitting in a sand watching a match in Ashburn and there was people behind her and they were saying, let's use me I can't remember what the the situation was but let's use me for example I don't know let's say I threw a crooked line out or something I don't know um, did you throw a crooked line out? I have in my time <laughs> I don't know <laughs> I don't know if it was that day but let's say I did and basically people were standing behind her going that was shit like the fuck like that what's that shit and she said she turned around and she's like that's my friend you know like but it was brilliant because people who just supported rugby were now supporting the team not like your family and friends coming which is what it used to be or people with a connection to rugby now people were saying oh does women's rugby match on that's class let's go out and support that and it was fine that they were criticizing you because you shouldn't be doing the job right you know what I mean and like that was the thing like that because of the success that our team had it got more pub- uh, publicity and more popular and but I mean, you know yourself when teams are winning, people support them when teams are losing. They don't like, but I mean, but there are more people going to support games these days. But like I said, we played in the Aviva in 2013. We haven't played there since. You know what I mean? We haven't opened a fixture for the men's match. They had the option to double header with the 20s this year and they refused that because they thought a Sunday was a better day to put to put it on, you know what I mean? There have been continuous opportunities for growing this game and getting people involved in it and really getting people to buy into supporting a team instead of it being a women's team. And they haven't done it and this done it and this is just another example that like they were invited to, but I heard this months ago that they were invited and they had declined. Like that they were invited to go down to Australia and be a part of the tour along with the men. Like an unbelievable opportunity. But I mean, the girls also knew months ago that this wasn't happening because nobody had been notified that you'll need a month off to go down to Australia. And the training programs only started up a couple of weeks ago. The preseason only started a few weeks ago. So I mean, this isn't like a new story. It's just a really 
it's disappointing. It's come out only because obviously the Aussies have said it. But it is really disappointing because why wouldn't you use an opportunity to take a team, to grow them as a family together down in Australia for a couple of weeks to to let them experience a, a new environment of playing, a new climate, uh, like the next World Cup could be in Australia. Like, why wouldn't you want to do that? Why wouldn't you want to play international fixtures and actually create a buzz around the team and a buzz around the team for the players and stuff like that? But it's probably all money related I feel like the interest in women's rugby in Ireland is very directed towards the sevens because that is something that actually can bring in investment whereas the 15s team probably is never going to make money it's not going to be like the men's team maybe it will in years but you know in this moment it's not but I mean they have opportunities to give like I mean it's all about leaving things better for the people in the future like you know it's mad like it seems it sounds it sounds crazy coming me saying it. Um, like I feel like I sound crazy myself saying it that, that the fact that women have, haven't had an equal opportunity in sport. They have, there's other places in Irish society where they haven't had equal opportunity as well or haven't been treated with the same amount of respect. And actually the repealing of the Eighth Amendment, that whole referendum, that seems to be a step forward yeah. for women. Um, in general in this country. But like, how are we going to change this? Like this has to change. It can't be always like that where, the women's teams are getting kicked to the curb uh, all the time. Like, I just don't know because I have my own problems with the RFU and how they've been treating me. And I I find it really difficult to say the RFU because, like I said, the RFU have never been anything but nice to like, like respectful of me and supportive of my playing career and everything like that. I don't feel like, uh, I feel like it's just the people involved in, in, in the current roles of, of power, the directors of rugby and, and the coaches and stuff like that. I'm not speaking about the current 15s coach. I don't even know the lad, but I mean, you know, in that period of time and the, the, well, the directors of rugby are still the same. Um, it's hard because. I mean, what do you want? Like, do you want your team to be the best team in the world or do you want your team to be competitive or do you just want your team to exist? These are the questions you have to ask. And if you look in other countries, England want to be the best team in the world. They have a semi-professional premiership now. Uh, their 15s players get a certain amount of funding. Like, if France are the same. Uh, like, these teams are, are looking to be the best team in the world. They have active goals to become the best team in the world and to win World Cups and to bring more people into the sport because I suppose they love the sport and they want, and they want it to grow to every part of the country. Um, it looks like we just want to exist. It looks like we bitch when we don't do well. But I mean, just telling people you're in a high performance training program is not, is not like the same as, as like actively supporting somebody in a high performance training program. I remember when Tom came in after the 2014 World Cup and like it was the first time we met, he only had four weeks with us before that 2015 Six Nations um, and he came in and he literally sat there and was like you don't know anything about professionalism I'm going to show you what professionalism is now this is probably because he felt he was professional because he was getting paid the fact is we had been professional for quite a long time without getting paid because we had the most professional coaches who put huge amount of time and effort and work into us. And we had done all the same training programs that were now being handed out by somebody who was getting paid to hand them out. You know what I mean? So it just depends on whether it depends on whether they want us to exist or they want us to be competitive or they want us to be the best. And it looks like existing is enough at the moment. I don't know how you change it. I mean, when we got that overnight train to France a couple of years ago, an ex-player sent a letter into the Irish Times saying, like basically telling the story because, you know, nobody had said it. 
And then suddenly it kicked off a little bit of a revolution where people were kind of going, well, hang on, this shouldn't happen. And it'll be the same about this, like, this shouldn't happen. The girls should have that opportunity to go to Australia. Why wouldn't you want that opportunity? Why wouldn't you have it? I understand their frustration, but the wrong people are involved, like the people who genuinely love that that team. And there are a lot of ex-players who would love to be involved in the decision-making processes and how this game plan grows. And there's been a strategic review and we're waiting to see the result of that, whether it'll be lip service or whether it will be actually a plan in place. Because at the moment, you don't know if it'll actually turn into anything. But like you're kind of fighting a battle that you don't know how to win because you'd love to just grab three people that you know would do the job and drop them into the role and let the sport like explode. But I don't know if that's going to happen with the people who are currently there. Um, I, I don't see it happening, to be honest. What's coming up next for you? For me? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Life. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I have a bit of work at the moment. I work in analysis, so there's quite a lot of stuff going on with that, um, with the hurling on at the moment. Uh, um, You're doing the analysis for? For the Clare hurlers, yeah. So I'm doing their analysis. So, you know, obviously we've tipped this weekend, so we'll see how that that goes. Um, I'm going to the Sevens World Cup with the Spanish team uh, to work with their, female, their girls team in... Um, in July so that's on San Francisco I don't really know to be honest I'm at a turning point in in life I think probably now that I love playing rugby again well love not I don't love it as much as I used to but I enjoy playing rugby again so that's you know now that I am back to that point I probably don't want to stop playing but I do feel like there has to be something more out there now you know I spent a lot of my my years focusing on on rugby and training and playing for Ireland and then I spent another kind of two years uh, wondering why I wasn't playing for Ireland and in a in a heap. And it's only recently that I've got myself back out of that heap and, you know, lucky to have good people around me that have, have stood by me and helped me get back on my feet and stuff. But I definitely feel like I need something a little bit new in my life. I don't see myself staying here at the moment. Um what I don't I don't know where I'm going. Does it, any part of you ever think that you'd like to go back and make sure that what happened to you in terms of the concussion and the way you were treated afterwards doesn't happen again to other players? Well, like, this is the thing that bothers me the most. Like, and I've never spoke publicly. This is the first time I've spoke anything about it. There's never even been anything on a Facebook comment or nothing. Like, um, the thing that I always feel is that whether I was the best player in the world or the worst player in the world, I'm still a human being, like, and this was still my life. Like, it wasn't like some sort of joke like this was this was my life that we were talking about whether I was worth the investment as a as a women's rugby player or not worth it it was it was still my life and I feel like that's where I was abandoned like and I, that's where I was let down and I, I do worry that the fact I, I, it won't happen again I'd say the lesson is well learned and I was probably the reason that it's learned and it won't it won't happen again but I have always worried that like somebody gets a bang in training and they do the same thing. They just shove her home with no medical assessment and the poor creator dies in her sleep or something. You don't, like, you have no idea. They definitely had no conclusive idea that there was nothing wrong with me that day. You know, there was no scans and no doctor there. Like, but I worry that that, that that would happen again, but I don't think it will because I, I definitely feel like I was a big, uh, a learning curve for what they could and couldn't do. I don't understand how, couple of grown men couldn't have 
looked after the situation better as as fathers, as as adults, as people with sisters and, and wives and the whole lot. I don't understand how it couldn't have been looked after better. And forget about the aftermath of everything because they'll always argue responsibility. You're not a contracted player. All of that kind of stuff. They don't have to probably look after you. You know what I mean? Because you're not contracted. You know, it's not your workplace. It's 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 a place that you go voluntarily. But I'll always wonder in that kind of 24, 48 hour period why somebody kind of didn't care a little bit more, even if they didn't like me and they thought I was the biggest asshole in the world. Uh, why they still didn't say, all right, but in fairness, like, you know, it's still a big injury we should look after. Like, and I, I don't think it'll ever happen again. Like I said, I think the lesson is well learned there. Do you ever think about the possible long-term effects of having such a serious concussion? Uh, like I've kind of dealt with what, with what they are. Like, I know that when I get a bit of anxiety, that kind of shaking comes back sometimes. It's not pleasant, but I also know what it is and I know it'll go away, you know? Um, I have kind of no memory now these days. It's kind of, it's very frustrating, like, because I mean, my memories from the past are great, but like short term memory, somebody asking me to do something, it's not going to be done. Like it's got to go in the phone or it's not being done. And somebody telling me they're going somewhere on a weekend and I'm like, you didn't tell me that. And they've told me like, do you know what I mean? And, or I might go away and I might not tell anybody that I'm going away. And then somebody texts you going, are you going away for the weekend? And you're like, oh, should I not tell you? Cause I might have thought I told them. So those kind of things are frustrating and they're not great. Like, and, I'd prefer to to not have them, but I also realise that I'm very lucky. Like, and some people have been much worse after me, and some people have had real long term significant effects from from playing. And that was the risk coming back. Like, you know, to, was I pushing my luck? Like, had I survived a big one, was I going to put myself in harm's way again, where I wouldn't survive the next one? You know, something bigger would happen. But you know, you like you adapt and you, and you you know how to deal with these things. And if there's some serious symptoms that are still kind of kind of still there in a way yeah like I, I mean I don't have headaches anymore um and I kind of yeah I forget stuff they are, like I said if I get upset about something or if I get worried about something that tingling kind of comes back for a while I don't like that that's the thing that I don't like but I also know that it's probably it, it that it's not like some it's not something I can control or stop but like I did when I decided to go back playing I did stop taking that medication because I needed to feel everything that was happening because it was too important not to feel it like it was too important to have medication that could possibly cover up anything so you know I haven't taken that medication for a long time and maybe uh and I I don't I don't I wouldn't need to take it again but like you know it's just uh it's just something that I think I have to just accept and it's there like now. Do you resent the way that you were treated now looking back? Oh yeah, I'm very bitter like. <laughs> I'm very bitter and I mean, you know, of course I do like because why I've seen other people with a broken toe treated better than me like, you know what I mean? Of course I do and I can't ever pinpoint what it was. I genuinely don't think it was a rugby reason because I couldn't understand how anybody would ever question my commitment to the team or ever question what I had achieved with all the rest of my teammates. So, you know, I never feel like it was a rugby thing. I mean, sure, I don't know. Like, you know, people will tell you you weren't good enough to play. I picked a team. That's the way it is. It's not even about playing with Ireland anymore again. It's just the fact that, like, my life was in the shitter for a solid year. And then I spent another year like really depressed and stuff um, and in a really, really bad way. And I I do regret parts of that. Like I, I regret that I, now I probably regret coming back playing because I could have just moved on my life and I could be in a different part of my life now and I mightn't still be thinking about it. But like going back playing and putting myself back in that environment probably hurt me more like, um, mentally it hurt me more and not getting what, 
not what I deserved, but what I what I wanted to try and achieve. There's no guarantees in anything. You can get injured the last training session before a World Cup. You might not actually be good enough anymore. There's loads of reasons why you wouldn't get selected. It was just the fact that I never got that opportunity to to show show if I was good enough anymore. You know what I mean? Looking back now, what advice would you give to someone who's suffering? I guess the, the the mental sort of trauma as well of a concussion or of depression. What advice would you give someone? Well, like the concussion thing, I think has to be like it has to be dealt with on the medical side of things because you know once you feel like people are looking after you, like anxiety, I feel is a huge part of it. So, like at least if you can tick the boxes medically, uh, it's good to know that there isn't something growing inside your head. It's good to know that that there might be a reason for something like the vestibular thing was important to me because I was wondering why I was dizzy turning my head and stuff like that. And, you know, I'm not saying that made me feel better, but it was good to know that there was reasons behind stuff. And then there was other things that were completely unexplained, but they tell you that the more you learn about concussion, the less you actually know. Like, so, you know, it's, it's a, it's an evolving field, like, and hopefully someday, like, people will have a bigger grasp on it, but it is something that, that it's, at least it's been studied and it's been looked after. So medically, you have to be looked after. Like, emotionally, you just need to keep really good people around you and they need to put up with you because, I mean, like I said, I had very little to offer anybody. I definitely didn't have a smile for anybody. The people closest to me had to, had to take had to take what I was I was dishing out and yeah they can be hard on you sometimes and stuff but like you need good people around you because when you're going through any sort of kind of crisis it's more important to have people around you you can't do those things on your own like and uh it for me like you know it does it it did get better it does get better um I'll probably always regret not having that moment to step back on a pitch again but like I do realize that I'm incredibly lucky that I have got back to play. I, I mean, I went after playing against the Barbarians in November, I was invited to go play with the Barbarians against the British Army in February. And like, I definitely didn't expect it. I thought my moment had, had finished. I hadn't played for Ireland for two years. I thought that moment was gone. I never expected to sit in a room of 15 internationals again. And I, I played with like four of my Irish teammates. I played with one of my best friends from, from Spain and somebody who supported me a lot. Like, and I got to, it was almost like a closure in one way because like the Barbarians is like this special club and it's all about rugby. It's all about the fun in rugby, the values in rugby and enjoying rugby and just playing for rugby. And you're in a room where every single person has proven their point and there's no points to prove. And it was fun and it was, it was so many games and it was music and it, it was like, you know, we don't play boring rugby. We try everything. I don't care if you kick it over the back of your head. We're doing this. Like, you know, and it was just, it was a fantastic couple of days with them. And it, it's exactly what rugby is like looking at the team, looking at how the boys played last weekend. It's fun. Like, and it's exactly what it is. And, you know, I don't regret having come back and played and having those opportunities. Cause I think those opportunities are giving me more memories that I'm going to cherish from rugby for the rest of my life. Um, but there are, there are days that I feel like maybe my life would have been better off if I had just said, I have a really bad head injury. I should have walked away with my head held high because I definitely got kind of taken out to the point where I didn't feel like I should ever have worn an Irish jersey. It even feels hard to remember why I was even picked for Ireland sometimes, you know what I mean? So your confidence does get kind of absolutely ripped out of you and you need people around you. And like I said, guess he rang me to say, do you want to play? Like that's only one person having a little bit of faith in you. And if people have faith in you, then then you can kind of achieve anything. But you have to have those people around you. You you, you know you can't do everything on your own. Like.
saying that, I think we've kind of come full circle <laughs> yeah. in our chat here. But I mean, one thing I've noticed just through through our conversation here is you've been you're quite modest and a few times during the conversation you've been like, Oh, I'm not really sure why I was here or like oh, kind of okay, but I'm sure that anyone who knows you any bit will will definitely know how hard you've worked to build up your career and well, how well you've done to get it's a team, isn't it? Yeah, how you are today. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks very much for taking the time to sit down and sharing your story and everything. Yeah. And uh, and I know you you know this and I've said this to you before that like I you we were in college together or whatever and I've used you as a as a buddy and as a, an SNC over the past few years as well before the 2014 World Cup you you helped me get in shape for that when I came to you with a concussion and I asked you what I was going to do with that as well and you helped me with that like and you're definitely one of the people that has the same values in sport and in rugby that that should be should be in everybody's life and I I know how much you contribute to the people that are involved with you and like it's really important that everybody knows that uh, you're you're that good guy for all the the fellas out there that I'm not very happy with like you make up for all of them by being a good lad and being a lad that'll put a helping hand out and look and being a support pillar for people as well when they need it thanks very much Jill that means a lot (laughs) what a love I'd like to really thank Jill personally for taking the time to sit down with me and having this conversation as I said earlier I listened back to the chat that we had several times before it went on the podcast and at certain stages during the conversation my jaw was literally on the floor It highlighted the difference that we have between male and female sports, how those sports teams are promoted and how the individual athletes on the teams are treated. But it also showed the character the sports can build and how important it is that we realise the contribution that people like Jill make to life in Ireland and how important it is that we have role models who are just like Jill as well. This podcast is free to listen to, it's independent and it's just me sitting here having chats and putting the show together with people that I feel like you'll be interested in hearing from. So I'd really appreciate if you would rate and review the Rebel Matters podcast on iTunes and share it on your social media. Also get in touch through Twitter at OC. Let me know what you thought about this episode or if you have any suggestions about the podcast in general. I'm really looking forward to hearing from some of the listeners and starting that conversation. The music for this episode of the Rebel Matters podcast is by the amazing Keela, who have been on the road for over 30 years. I remember seeing Keela for the very first time in Cultalamagadamo Fake on the Falls Road when I was about 7 or 8 years of age, and Colmo Snuddy kindly gave me permission to use parts of one of my favourite Keela tracks, Cardinal Knowledge, for the podcast here, so I'm very grateful for Colm and for the rest of the lads in Keela. You can check out their upcoming tour dates on their website, Kila.ie, K-I-L-A.ie, and on Facebook as well. Now, as promised, I'm going to leave you with a very special treat to finish out the episode tonight. We're going to play Kneecap's latest track, Amakanacht. Kneecap, of course, are the controversial rap trio from Belfast, made up of Mowgli, Bap, Makara, and DJ Provey, who are going to be at the Gym Jam in Ackley on the 21st of July, uh, fundraising for the Irish Wheelchair Rugby team. So make sure to uh, find out a little bit more about the, the Gym Jam and get yourself a ticket if you're interested in coming along that and supporting Alan Deneen and the Irish Wheelchair Rugby team. Now, the newest track by Kneecap is called Amakanacht. You can catch the video for the track on YouTube. You can also catch them on Spotify. It's controversial as usual, but for now, we've got Amakanacht by Kneecap right here on the Rebel Matters podcast. Kajin Kedir Alakara, Kinyi Fire, Bimekhain Lakalua, August Buen Saltas and Track. Journey, he hammered her, what a chuck the nurse gun, and what a he had, come out of the village, really gonna eat.
Sure. 